everyone, and welcome to a spooky edition of Directors Club. Uh, every October, we try to cover a horror filmmaker that we think is worth discussing. And boy, this month we have a doozy that I absolutely needed two guests for. They are experts of the genre, having done two very special horror shows in the past together, as well as a few commentaries for the uh, revered Tracks of the Damned. First up, we have the host of that show, and uh, he's occasionally co-host here as well, Mr. Patrick Rapol. Hi. Hey, how's it going, Jim? I think that the Cider House rules. And secondly, the host of another great podcast on the Now Playing Network is here, and he is the voice behind Genre Grinder. Say hello to Mr. Game Powers. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Today we're going to talk about another Italian filmmaker since we uh, we all covered in the past, gosh, I don't know even know how long ago now, um, Mario Bava and Dario Argento. And uh, let me tell you, I'm, I'm already excited for a sequel episode in the future for this director. He is none other than Lucio Fulci. Oh boy, what a filmography. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> but of course... We have a couple of ad appetizers before we get to the uh, the main course. Um, let's just talk briefly about how things are, are going uh, during the most insane year uh, of of anybody's life right I'm now. I'm tired. Uh, I'm tired. I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want to do this no more. <laughs> I, wanna, I don't know. Whatever. Whatever we've been doing for the past six months, I'm done. I want to do something else. Can we all? <laughs> oh man, I uh, I uh, my partner. Uh, sent me this uh, hardcore song they found by this band whose name I can't pronounce. It's like Xylitol or something. Uh, they're like <laughs> a hardcore band out of uh, Washington, and they have this song called I Want a Refund, and the chorus is just world's a fucking pile of shit. I want a refund, and I listened to it like 15 times in a row yesterday because <laughs> I was like, yes, I'm done. Let's Let's move on. <laughs> Personally, I'm fine. I'm having a great time. It's, yeah, you know, yeah, you know. It's uh, when you when you have a, a compromised immune system, uh, the world is your oyster. And during pandemics, it's uh, <laughs> it's truly nothing to be afraid of. <laughs> yeah, I've been afraid of people most of my life, and so, yeah, yeah. So it's fine if I have like like David Lynch said recently. I enjoy isolation. <laughs> you know. Uh, I don't enjoy isolation, but I do hate crowds, so I suppose yeah. that part hasn't actually gotten worse. I mean, I guess in reality, I do like a nice balance. I, obviously, I love going to something like the Music Box of Horrors, because those are my people. But I also went, oh, I guess if I want to experience that, I have to pay an obscene amount of money to go to the drive-in. Uh, and honestly, I'm fine with staying Is it home. an obscene amount of money? I thought it was. Like to go every, I don't know if it for the whole month. Oh, if you're going every single day, like they have a month there. So the Music Box of Horrors is normally a 24 hour film festival that takes place at the Music Box Theater. But obviously they don't want to pack a theater full of people for 24 right. straight hours. So instead they have stretched it across the entire month of October and they are doing double features uh, and some single features as well uh, of both uh, beloved and obscure uh, horror movies. So yeah, if you were going to go every single day, that would be expensive. But I don't think the individual screenings are that expensive. I just see that like most drive-in showings, I, I think it's better if you bring four people along or something because it's yeah. more cost-effective that way. At least you know it's like forty bucks or something. 
Well, for me, I was uh, Christine and I were really thinking about going, but it it just there what the, the the rule we made for ourselves is if there were two double features in a row and we could spend the night and watch another one, and there wasn't even two movies on a double feature that we were willing to drive from Minnesota to see. Really, it's it's too bad because basically the majority of the U.S. is getting some decent drive-in. Anywhere that has a drive-in is getting some cool... They're touring Evil Dead right now. Mm. They're touring uh, Zombie, actually, which we'll, I think, talk about a little bit here. Uh, but for whatever reason, we're not getting it here in Minnesota in our two uh, drive-ins. So I've, been, I've been, tempted more, been tempted more than once to go out to Chicago because you guys have had some of those showings. But that just seems like a lot. <laughs> for for a couple movies, yeah, yeah, and for the most part, like I, I, it seems like more than ever lately, publicists are sending me screening links for interesting indie films or yeah, not so interesting indie films mm-hmm. that I'm kind of like, well, I'll 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 try my best to start reviewing on a regular basis, especially since they're kind enough to you know offer me potential interviews and <laughs> things like that. I've I've got a couple in the works, hopefully. Um, but yeah, I'll talk about one that I think will appeal to both of you uh, during this next segment, which is also known as the What We Watch <laughs> segment, which begins now. I watch the light of the eye, ghoulies and Scrooge, and a beautiful mind. Wish master the mule, nobody's fool. Hey guests, are you ready? Hi Jim. No. Let's do this. You know, you know the score. You know what's going on. Um, Okay. Yeah, I know. Who goes first? (laughs) I don't know who goes first. Who wants to go first? Who's excited? I've just been watching. I've just been watching Lucio Fulci movies over and and, and Mm. here and there. And what I'm trying to think of what I've watched that wasn't Lucio Fulci uh, recently. Well, or it wasn't for the other podcast. Did you watch done, Zombie I, Three recently? Because that's not Lucio Fulci. <laughs> no, it's it's half Lucio Fulci. Is huh. it? Is it um, that much? I, I was of the impression it's like barely any Lucio Fulci. Uh, no, it's it's really about half. Okay. Uh, there's arguments over how much it was. He he claims it was some. I mean, it, it changes from Fulci to Fulci. Honestly. Uh, I was going to say I watched She Dies Tomorrow uh, and really enjoyed it, but it feels like that's a Jim movie. It's a movie for Jim to talk about. <laughs> yeah, no, I definitely have talked about it, my love for it. It's probably my favorite of the year so far. Um, mm-hmm. There's, it, it, I have to watch it again, too, before the end of the year, but I, I just it, – it, it really got to me. I, I was, I was, and it's, it's funny because I was hoping that the new Charlie Kaufman movie would kind of do something similar, and I was shocked that it didn't. I was kind of like – uh, and I talked about that in the last episode, the Bob Clark episode, because like those to me were like the ultimate gym movies that uh, I was really anticipating for this year. And one really lived up to my expectations and the other not so much. So uh, but no, there's there's some good stuff 
kind of like coming out on VOD here and there. Um, but I, I know you watched that that Netflix American Murder recently too, and I've, yeah. I've heard a lot of interesting uh, critiques about it in, in terms of its use of social media and the way they uh, tell that story. Well, it was funny that I watched it right after um, I recorded a podcast about found footage horror, and uh, uh, my fellow podcaster Betsy Jorgensen and I sort of came to the inclusion the conclusion that more found footage horror movies need to utilize uh, uh, social networking and found video as a thing. And right afterwards, I ended up I ended up watching this maybe a day afterwards, and it's so depressing that I, that I was like, "Well, shit, it is really scary when you use it." But um, I, I wanted it to be entertainingly scary, not just a bummer. It's a, uh, it's really a, it's a movie that I thought was more about. In, it was more interesting from the 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 way it was put together than the, what it was. It's not a particularly unique story. It's a it's a murder guy who murders his family which you know the the movie itself even acknowledges at the end that that's a very common problem hmm. uh but apparently the family was okay with the footage being used so i don't know about the exploitative uh, i i mean it's really hard any any of these uh i guess you call them prestige true crime things that have been coming out on netflix and amazon f- maybe hulu for the last couple of years oh and hbo they all kind of feel a little bit exploitative. It's just sort of in their nature. Yeah. So I don't know if I thought this one was necessarily more exploitative than others. They didn't like show any dead body. I think that's like the line for me is if you're showing footage, if they would have shown footage of somebody stumbling across their bodies, that would have been probably a, too far, but that, that doesn't happen. So yeah, I know there's, int- there's one on Hulu. I don't think Errol Morris directed it, but it's inspired by no. I watched that too. Oh, yeah. Wilderness of Error. It was a, a series. Um, it it's uh, it's set up like an Earl Morris movie, and that it has a lot of reenactments. Mm. Um, and he's interviewed in it. It's based off of a book uh, he wrote. It, right. I, wrote I, I, I've about, actually uh, read that book. The it's it's kind mm-hmm. of interesting. It's like well, uh, nonfiction is not his. I should say. Uh, nonfiction writing is not his medium as much as nonfiction filmmaking. Um, but it, but other mm-hmm. than that, the book very much proceeds the way you would expect a Errol Morris movie to. Yeah, I thought that one ended really awkwardly. There was another movie called, uh, oh, it was a Netflix one, You Don't Fuck With Cats. Oh, yeah. Ooh. This one reminded, I think Wilderness of Error, it was a lot less upsetting to watch than You Don't Fuck With Cats because it doesn't have all that horrible footage. Mm. But it ends much the same way in that it's trying to have its cake and eat it too. And it's sort of like, yeah. oh, I didn't think you'd think about that. And I just kind of wanted it to both movies to commit to being exploitative or having an opinion on the matter. And instead, at the last minute, they're like, we don't have an opinion on this matter. And I don't know, kind of bothered me. But I always like that stuff. I watch a lot of it. I hate it when it gets all Michael Haneke or something from Funny Games where it, where they like say, oh, you 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 weren't expecting to think about this aspect, were you? And you should really think about why you're watching this right now. Isn't, isn't, didn't that happen at the end of that one? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was really stupid. Yeah. Th- that nothing that stupid happens at the end of the other one, but yeah, it was really fucking stupid. Agreed. It almost ruined the whole series for me. Oh, I know what I watched. I watched witch trap. 
from 1989 hmm. because it was on Amazon. And and I have this little catalog in my brain of movies that I saw scenes from as a kid that scared me. And I'm trying to figure out what all the movies were. Mm. And I've gotten really far into the list. And there's a scene in Witch Trap where uh, uh, Leanna uh, Quigley uh, is trying to take a shower and the water stops coming out and the shower head flies off and sticks into her throat and then goes back up onto the shower. And I saw that on TV, on cable TV randomly and was unable to stand directly under the shower spigot for like years okay. because of that. So you have to you have to sort this out for me. So which trap, uh, which board? Same filmmaker, unrelated Really? Movies. The same ter- <laughs> yes. filmmaker? And then is there yes. – which one had the series where there's just like 12 of them? It's Witchboard. The, the same guy made the first two Witchboards and Witch Trap and Night of the Demons. Mm. Oh, okay, one. okay. And then someone else took over Night of the Demons and, and like and there's like a several thousand Witchboards now. And is Witch House the name of a movie or is that just a very bad uh, subgenre of hip-hop? <laughs> um, I think Witch House is the name of uh, it's the English language name of a uh, of uh, um, Italian movie actually if I remember okay. right oh no no that one's called Witchery there, it was called uh, La Casa uh, Four Quattro uh, in, and it, it, it as trying to sell it as a sequel to Evil Dead which was called La Casa uh, and here it was called Witchery and I was thinking it was called Witch House I don't witch think there, I don't think there were twelve witchboards. I think you're thinking of witchcraft. No. Oh, witchcraft! Shit. I don't even know then. That's it. Is witchcraft the one that's like basically softcore? Well, porn? I was yeah. assigned as part of my fundraiser thing. I was assigned to watch like witchcraft four or something along those lines, and that was softcore <laughs> okay. porn. I don't know how the series yeah. originated. I think that one is probably like Cinemax or Showtime. Yeah, like, I would think fodder. so. That makes more sense. Witch House is also Dreams in the Witch House is a is a H.P. Lovecraft. That uh, was a episode of Masters of Horror by Stuart Gordon. Yep. Yeah, and it was really bad. Well, it was really bad. It was though of- it was funny because it was the same season as the Takashi Miike imprint episode that was banned from Showtime. Right. Um, and right. the Takashi Miike uh, uh, reportedly the imagery from that episode that got it banned was the abortion imagery. Um, mm-hmm. but the dreams from the witch house had like a scene where rats ate a baby. <laughs> so it mm-hmm. was like, Whoa. it was like, it was a very interesting, uh, interpretation of pro-life values where it was like, well, the baby's already been born. So who gives a fuck? <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. That, 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 but yeah, that movie, I, I, I witch trap is one of those movies that, 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 that absolutely sucks, but is just enough going on mm-hmm. that I didn't get bored watching it. For some reason in my mind um, I'm thinking of something like Evil Speak. Is it along those lines in terms of tone? It's a little bit, but it came out in the late uh. 80s, so it's it's like definitely aimed at the straight to video market, uh, whereas Evil Speak was made to come out in theaters. I, I think there's always a difference there. It, the big thing it has is it has, um, the actors appear to be people who just appear in this other this guy's other movies, and some of them are actually decent actors, and some of them are really awful actors. But they're all like parsing this really difficult dialogue of of uh, of one liners and stuff. So there's very uh, room like scenes of people talking to each other about their feelings. 
I, I think it would work very well with the midnight crowd. That feels like a, a real thing, especially with the shot on video movies, but also the where it was just like there'd be these little crews that the same director and the same mm-hmm. actors would just cr- crank out these movies um, in that mm-hmm. era of just like, oh, the video market is still at a point where we can kind of just get anything made if long as the budget's cheap, low enough. Yeah, somebody will buy it and put it out. Yeah, actually, Patrick and I were going to talk about doing straight-to-video, or, or shot-on-video movies at some yeah. point, which is which is an extra layer of hell. <laughs> <laughs> That's something I wouldn't mind exploring, probably not in depth, but there's certainly... There's, certainly <laughs> there's no depth to it, Jim. Yeah, exactly. And there's, but I'm sure there's a lot of them that I missed, and I, I just remember, you know, like, going off to visit friends at college, and they had rented Psychos in Love, and mm-hmm. I I could not believe what I was seeing. <laughs> it was just like, mm-hmm. can, can how did this get released? How did video stores <clears throat> take this? And why are people like creating a cult around? I guess it's the so bad it's good experience. Really, I don't yeah. know if there was anything like artistic it's just weird. or interesting. It's, yeah, it's weird. It it's something you can't see. Anymore. Well, yeah, I think I think I have not seen Psychos in Love, but. Uh, I think a lot of the shot on video movies, the any cult uh, audience, any cult fan base those movies have is heavily built on vibes. It is very much a yeah. none of these movies are like very few of these movies, if any, are secretly good. There were no like real John Carpenters of the SOV world, whereas like, <laughs> you know, great craftsmen who just happened to be working on Betamax cameras. It's It was always just like. <laughs> Because they were so low rent and because they foregoed so many uh, professionalisms as far as lighting and sound and and all of those things and sets, you're just sort of like, oh, this is what the director's bedroom looks like. Because it's like like every the the SOV staple is always just like a fucking uh, Evil Dead poster on the wall somewhere or something like that, because it was just Mm -hmm. like. Because they're horror dorks who got their horror dork friends together and they made a movie in their homes and their homes were full of horror dork shit. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like watching home videos uh, as much as it is watching slasher movies. Uh, Yeah, that makes sense. I picked up, uh, I think it's Vinegar Syndrome's Limbo because I was curious about it since it was described as something along the lines of David Lynch like working with nine inch nails or something. Yeah. <laughs> like it had a really, it had a very uh, interesting description to where I'm like, you know what? I'm going to take a chance on this, even though I know it may not be high art. I think I'm just, it's more of a curiosity thing with that one. Yeah. That one was, um, directed by an actor who she had been in a bunch of other SOV movies, um, including some wave productions, which wave productions are their own fucking crazy thing. Um, but that one is like, uh, it's almost, you can delineate uh, the difference between analog shot on video and digital shot on video. Um, Cause especially yeah. after scream, uh, everyone was cranking out horror movies all the time. So like a lot of the movies that were uh, made in the eighties and nineties, especially in the nineties, once sort of horror as a genre was genre where that people could make a ton of money from was kind of drying up. Um, it was they were sort of these passion projects almost. There were these films made because they were made by people who really loved the stuff and they their love exceeded their talent. And at a certain point, uh post scream, you could sort of it was sort of like the early boom of the video market all over again where you can just 
shoot a bunch of digital video. <laughs> like, and so all yeah. these like college films and stuff were going direct to DVD. Um, I have one called the mailman. That's pretty amazing. Uh, so limbo is of that digital era, I believe, which is, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a, uh, it's sort of like the difference between the post scream slasher movies and the post Friday 13th slasher movies. Yeah, don't give away too much of this for free. We we need the people to listen to my podcast. Oh yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. Check out Genre <laughs> Grinder, shot on video episode. <laughs> yeah, I know. After Scream, I couldn't help but get my friends together to make something. I mean, I had no idea how to make a movie, how to put things together. All I had was you know a, a, a Sony Mini DV camcorder, and we just you know got together and shot scenes of my uh, my best friend stabbing other friends. And I'm just like, yeah, let's just uh, yeah. let's just make it a meta ridiculous thing. It's terrible, <laughs> but it's it's entertaining for us, you know. And I I I, I can see the spirit of that going into the uh, SOV world mm-hmm. and just kind of like I, I might enjoy it just on that level of. It's clear that they they're not talented and the acting is bad, but it, the passion is there and clearly they have a love for the genre that that'll carry it through right. for me. And then sometimes it does, so. like, sort of accidentally come around, and it's like, wow, there is something to this, whether the whether the filmmakers had total control over it or not, but, uh... Yeah. I don't know. That's also... I always think of, like, the digital SOV boom as being, like, the, the fan film boom. Like, that was... That mm-hmm. was the era where it was just, like, a hundred motherfuckers bought Michael Myers Halloween masks and made their own, like, Halloween fan films. Uh, yeah. If you go, like, I think Dell from Hell was a was a website that this guy he shot all these movies on uh, on like mini DV, uh, and he made a couple like Friday Thirteenth fan films that were kind of hilarious and cool. Uh, I think I actually talked about years and years and years ago on this podcast. I talked about Friday Thirteenth Part Three, Jason's Revenge, which is not <laughs> a continuation of Friday Thirteenth Part Two, but in fact the third part of a trilogy that this guy made. Um, but it's the only one that's available, and it's got its own weird mythology and just a bunch of stolen music cues from the proper Paramount movies and stuff. It's pretty funny. Um, I I had a friend in high school with only he's still my friend actually. He has a he's missing one leg, and I had we had a particularly insensitive friend that kept on trying to figure out how to do a zombie movie where we would pull off his leg and I kept on saying he's not interested in that but he's like but we have him he has one leg it, it's like cheap gore effects and it, it was it was something that was never going to happen and I had to be the adult in the situation even though we were like all 16 at the time I don't know if that guy ever did anything last I heard he's a works at a tattoo shop Patrick what have you been watching lately oh god I don't know I, uh, well, you, you you certainly have that big project going on still, and uh, I'm sure there's some things that have stood out. Oh yeah, I mean, you can check my letterbox if you want to see all the movies I want. <laughs> I, I, that's the thing about this is just like, oh, I anything that I, has been assigned to me, I've already written a lengthy review of, so I'll just be paraphrasing something I already wrote. Um, sure. I don't know. I'm trying to get into the October spirit, uh, but also. I have all these other projects I'm doing, including the uh, fundraiser thing. So it's like uh, finding time to watch movies that I just want to watch is a little harder. But I um, I started watching The Outsider, the HBO show, which is terrible. That's a dumb show. That show, it it almost was like that perfect 
I, the thing I love about these newer Stephen King adaptations is they're trying to be so classy about yeah. trash. Yeah. And I, and, and the, an outsider starts with that classy trash and then it goes on like five episodes. Too oh, long. it's so that's for sure. That's, that's one of those series where I ab- <laughs> absolutely felt that way uh-huh. where it was like, this did not need to be as long. Well, as it it's, is, it's adapted sure. by Richard price. Who's an accomplished novelist. And he wrote for the wire and he has that, like he has that ear for sort of cop dialogue and cop procedure. He wrote Clockers, mm-hmm. which is what the uh, Spike Lee movie is based off of. Um, and mm-hmm. you and he most recently he did the miniseries for HBO, The Night of, which is all oh, about so good. sort of the procedure of a murder investigation and the prison system and sort of the ambiguity of someone's guilt and stuff like that. And then you're watching this movie about doppelgangers and like people who, and like this like monster that eats children. And it looks like the night of like the whole thing is just like yeah. crazy cop procedural. So I, I started watching that and I was initially intrigued by the ridiculous, uh, sort of aesthetic of it. The sort of super serious prestige TV, like shallow focus thing. Yeah. Um, but it got yeah. It wants to be True Detective or something like that. Um, true Detective doesn't look Every like that. Every actor though. involved wants wants an Emmy. The, yeah, for There's sure. Speci- like they all think. This yeah, is yeah, it. yeah, for sure. Um, oh God, so that I kind of dropped off that real hard. Um, but I did uh, see a uh, a Hammer film recently called Doctor Jekyll and Sister Hyde, um, hmm. which is it's a film directed by Roy uh, Roy Ward Baker. Um, who probably is best known for the Amicus films, the anthology films he made uh, for Amicus, including Silem and Vault of Horror, which and now the screaming starts. I think Silem mm-hmm. and Vault of Horror are probably the two best of that whole Amicus anthology horror movie uh, cycle. I'm a big fan of Tales from the Crypt myself, but yes, those are those. Are um, he directed Quatermass in the Pit, the uh, third Quatermass film. Uh, so he's a pretty accomplished director. Um, and uh, Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde is a very strange movie because it's a movie that has transgender text, which is not to say <laughs> subtext, which is, you know, you can watch The Matrix or I've seen I've seen reviews of like Jennifer's body that like they see the transgender subtext in those films. But Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde is literally about it's a retelling of the Robert Lewinson Steve or Robert Lewis Stevenson novel. Uh, the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde um, where Dr. Jekyll is this doctor who has a potion and then it releases all of his sort of repressed uh, evil uh, as he turns into this alter ego, Mr. Hyde, who sort of runs amok in uh, Victorian London. This, in this version, uh, Mr. Hyde is, uh, is Mrs. Hyde. It's a, it's a woman. And specifically the way that those transformation scenes occur, whatever you have like a, piece of media where it's a man ends up in a woman's body. There's like, there's a lot of different directions they go and they're all generally Mm. kind of, um, they're, they're generally just kind of like insensitive gags where it's like, uh, you, you watch, it's always just like, Oh, I have boobs. What? And they like, they see themselves in the mirror. They're like, and it's like, it's, it's sort of presented as this like shocking, disgusting, uh, sort of thing. Which it would it would shock you if you woke up and it happened or whatever. But in this case, uh, the transformation scene is great because a it has like these great Poltergeist three style like mirror double uh, special effects where it, oh all in one shot you see the transformation happen and you're like, 
oh, it's because they said they had a body double and they it was a window that they made look like a mirror. And and those effects are always cool to me. I fucking love that stuff. Like the uh, mm-hmm. scene in Terminator 2 where they're like uh, digging in his brain for the chip. Mm-hmm. That was done with uh, Linda Hamilton's twin sister and a body double and, and with like a fake mirror. Like all that stuff is so cool to me. I love it every time. So the special effects are good in that they don't do like a slow dissolve Wolfman kind of transformation. But also the initial scene of Hyde sort of discovering herself is like she it's not horror she's not horrified she's totally pleased like she opens her coat and i'm sure you know this is a movie from 1971 directed by a 55 year old man for a studio that is kind of notoriously uh conservative in its politics or whatever so i'm not trying to say that this is a movie that's set out to tell the transgender story but regardless uh, you know, so this scene is probably in their eyes was just like, oh, well, we'll get some nudity into the movie. Um, right. But she's sort of like, you know, she's seeing her body and like cupping her breast to be and like she's so pleased with how she looks. And it's actually a direct mirroring of something that a lot of transgender people actually go through when they've started hormones. Uh, I, I've read, you know, lots of accounts of like you catch your a reflection of yourself and you suddenly look like the gender that you are and that sort of uh, gender affirming moment is this like revelatory thing um, or, you know, and, and like, so it's not presented as like the monster, like the man woman sort of a thing. It's presented as like, Oh, this is who Dr. Jekyll was already inside. And even in later scenes when Dr. Jekyll uh, is uh, in the male form, Dr. Jack, like Dr. Jekyll is like sending out for female clothes. Uh, and, and like, he's like getting, uh, she's getting a corset and like examining it and being like, ah, this is, this is pretty. I like this. So the implication to me is that like in the Robert Lewis and Robert Lewis Stevenson novel where Hyde is not this other person. Hyde is the side of Dr. Jekyll that Jekyll represses because um, Dr. Jekyll in that in that novel is this like super altruistic uh, uh, sort of philanthropist, you know, healing the poor and stuff like that doctor. And he and he is basically um, hiding away any evil or any vice or anything. And because it's so he's so repressed that it all explodes out in Mr. Hyde in this. It's basically implying um, whether or not they knew this is what they were implying that, you know, like, Dr. Jekyll is a woman, and they had there's references to how Dr. Jekyll doesn't socialize with people and is very shy and, like, never uh, dates anyone or anything, and it just is kind of awkward. Um, and Dr. Jekyll in Hyde form uh, is the opposite, is, like, totally comfortable and happy um, and isn't going on, like, rampages, but is just sort of, like, drinking cognac and admiring herself in the mirror. Because the effect only lasts for, like, 12 minutes in this movie for some reason. Instead of, like, all night, like in uh, most adaptations. Um, so it's just, like, she uh, she just transforms into her female form and then just kind of chills out. And so it's, like, really interesting and cool and, and a weird... Uh, something you don't expect from a movie dealing uh, with this sort of gender transformation thing in 1971. Um, The other weird thing about it is that it is sort of this weird uh, mishmash of all these different uh, popular tales where you get 
It's like the Avengers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, totally. It's a very epic crossover event because it's uh, it opens on this sequence uh, that feels very much like an Alfred Hitchcock sort of a sequence where it's all uh, it's not first person, but it's you don't see uh, this figure who is sort of stalking in the night of Victorian London in Whitechapel and like watching people through windows and watching prostitutes and cornering the prostitutes and killing them and performing a surgery on them, and so it's like, oh, it's Jack the Ripper. So in this story, Hyde is Jack the Ripper and Hyde is Jack the Ripper because the potion that she uses to turn into her actual self uh, is only done via like harvested female hormones, which is like, which is a a weird implication. It's like, is she she cutting out their ovaries? Is that the idea is that like she's cutting out (laughs) prostitutes ovaries? It kind of, that's. That's the and yeah, that's that's what I actually thought it was supposed to be. To tell you and truth. making potions out of I, them, um, but like only mm-hmm. doing that because she ran out of corpses, and she ran out of corpses because Burke and Hare, the famous grave robbers, <laughs> have been mm-hmm. have been uh, lynched for their crimes against humanity. Uh, so it's mm-hmm. this weird confluence of all these different storylines. So you might think like, wow, this movie sounds really cool and progressive and exciting, but the problem is that it's a movie from 1971. And for them to actually tell the story of Hyde, uh, and I'm like, I've been like kind of, I've been kind of being delicate around like how I use pronouns and stuff because I genuinely believe the story as presented in the film is Dr. Jekyll is a transgender woman who only discovers this through this potion that sort of je- uh, affirms her body or whatever. So like I, they're, it's not really a him and her situation. They're both kind of the same person. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think they're, you could probably prefer to both of them by uh, female pronouns, but at any rate, um, uh, the problem is once you get to that point where you have that sequence, and it's a really cool sequence. I forget the name of the actor uh, who plays Hyde, but she's really amazing. Uh, Martine Bestwick. Martine Bestwick. Um, she's just like she's just uh, very enigmatic and and alluring, and there's. She's seducing the uh, young man who lives down the hall and stuff, and she's just she's just sort of high on her power as a beautiful woman, and like that's it's it's like a really cool fantasy. But the problem with that is it's from 1971, and it's still essentially a monster movie, and it still essentially mm-hmm. believes that this is sort of a crazy, uh, outlandish, uh, monstrous thing to be happening. So rather than sort of empathizing with her and continuing that story, uh, it kind of just spins its wheels like nothing really happens in the second half of this movie uh you have the whole you have the whole plot that builds up to that first transformation scene and then it kind of just keeps happening and you just kind of hit the same beats over and over again and Hyde never really gets to develop as a character because there just isn't that empathy there so I don't want to like try to sell it's like at the end of the day this is yet another movie where a transgender person is a mass killer (laughs) <laughs> and and like and their gender status is you know a a uh, it's sort of a signpost of where they have gone wrong. Um, yeah, it's it's uh, it's definitely Hammer. Yeah, because a lot of Hammer movies will have progressive ideas, but then come back around to Jesus Christ and uh, the Catholic Church right. being the way you and all it. working class people are like moronic slobs at best. Mm-hmm. Um. So, yeah, it was it was Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde is a personal favorite actually and I I I do I do wonder if it and uh 
uh, Frankenstein created woman, how they actually would play with modern trans audiences, mm-hmm. uh, just because they do have that sort of very bad ultimate moral, yeah. but they also do interesting things between there. Well, I mean, there, there was and, that, um, what was the documentary that was on Netflix? Uh, that was, a, I haven't watched it, but I know it, it's it was about, about sort yeah. of trans depictions of transgender people in film and television. And like one of the recurring themes about, of that was that, you know, if you're transgender, there's so little representation of you at all. Like you kind of just take what you can get. And like, mm-hmm. and like whether or not it ends with you being, you know, whether or not it ends with the transgender person being this sort of like shocking thing where it's like, oh, and then they cut to the penis and you're like, what? Oh, what? And this it's like, like sleepaway camp. Yeah. People, actual trans people like I have a, a, a champion that movie, which I think is a really offensive movie. Well, as I mean, you, you, you take what you can get, you know what I mean? Like I yeah. love Vincent Price uh, in in those uh, Edgar Allan Poe movies because he is this like powerful, like bisexual man. And there's not a lot of powerful mm-hmm. bisexual men, but like he's evil. Like his, his yeah. sort of fay, like the heroes of those movies are masculine men. And, and yeah. he is depicted as sort of corrupt because of his sexuality. And that's not explicitly, but like he has all of the signposts of, a, of, you know, he, he is more feminine in his, you know, uh, in his gestures and he is, he is, he's Vincent Price, you know? Um, so like, I, I understand that you, you take what you can get. And I, I do believe there is a fair bit of, uh, transgender film criticism about Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde and Frankenstein creative Frankenstein creative woman didn't really, uh, in my recollection, didn't really deal with it very much. It barely, barely sort of, it's, it's definitely more like what you were saying, like, Oh my God. Yeah. What happened to me? Whoa, I have breasts now. Yeah, it was. it's really more of that kind of thing. And it's so, like, I think Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde is way more interesting in that regard, just because, you know, even back in, you know, to have a movie like this that really, that first transformation scene is really stunning and kind of, like, lovely and, um, and, and kind of moving in a way. Um, and there's a version of this movie that, you know, proceeds from there in that, tone but ultimately it just it can't get there because it's it is a hammer horror movie from 1971 so um i thought that was really Mm -hmm. interesting i wanted to give a quick shout out as well to this youtube series i've been watching uh called fantasy high um which is it's uh the youtube channel i believe is called dimension 20 uh uh, referring to like the d20 the kind of dice you use in tabletop role-playing games Mm -hmm. and it is a uh tabletop oh i know (laughs) Well, have you have you seen? You don't have to explain have seen, this. Have you seen this uh, series? I have not. No, I just know. I'm just, sure you don't have so, to explain um, it. It's connected to <laughs> college humor, which is I oh, don't okay. Which I, I like don't, already. Yeah, I don't really know what the. I don't know if it's like owned by College Humor or if College Humor distributes it or what's going on with it. College Humor kind of went under, so. Uh. I think that all the people involved are breaking off. I I can't say for sure. Well, this is like. Like they the, have, at least that th- this is this is like a this is like a, a live role playing thing. This actually happened when I was in Chicago with Tyler uh, last year. Mm-hmm. I think it was they did this. Oh, live. interesting. So, so it's yeah. a lot of cast members from College Humor, um, and mm-hmm. they're playing like basically a modified version of D anD. d Though I, for like legal reasons, they don't really mention the name of the game. Um, they're just sort of playing mm-hmm. it, and it is this sort of hybrid fantasy modern day 
uh, setting where they're, you know, it's these kids going to an adventuring academy and there's all like they're all different races and they're different sort of uh, archetypes. It's very breakfast club, like literally the first episode ends with them all getting detention together. Um, and that's sort of how they form their adventuring party as they all meet intentions. So it's like it, it's kind of uh, tropey in some ways, but there's a few things. One, they're all like gifted comedic improvisers um, because they that's what they do f- mostly um, is that sort of thing. So they are all extremely good at staying in character at like finding what would be interesting about. They just know what's interesting about the characters. They know. They and they role play. They don't just sort of like try to game it to do like the best possible run through. They're they're really playing mm-hmm. as these people. Um, some of them have you can tell like some of them have a lot of tabletop role playing experience, and then some of them are sort of new to it. But they're all extremely good. So all the characters are very vivid, and um, it's very easy. Very quickly, you get emotionally attached to all them. Um, and then the other thing is the DM. Uh, or GM, I suppose, is a more generic term. Uh, game master, uh, who is his name is Brennan Lee Mulligan, and he is yeah. incredible. He is so good. He yeah. a is like them a comedy improviser, sketch comedy guy. So he's able to switch between all the different characters that they encounter. He has all these different voices and stuff, and he's just really, really good at embodying um, these people and performing as them. But also. Uh, it's recorded weekly and you can tell he sort of alters the his planned storyline based on what they did the previous week. So he's very good at being reactive and making it feel like the story is emanating from their choices as opposed to they are sort of following a path that he has built. Um, and and he is just he's just really one of the most incredible improvisers I've ever seen. Um and uh, specifically in this way, and the way he—it's not just comedic. Though there's a lot of comedy to it. It's it's a funny show, but like it is the way he sort of commits to the emotional integrity of the characters. Uh, like I, we watched an episode last night that was towards the end, and it's like there's all these harrowing situations involving the characters' parents, and I was like, I was like in tears for some of some, for some of the confrontations and stuff like that. It was so beautiful. Um, and especially the, mm-hmm. the uh, all the players have like grown into their roles, and every it follows a structure where like every other episode is a combat episode. So like they'll sort of just you know okay I want to go there and to the library I want to see what I can find in the library and they play out those scenes like that. But then the next episode it's like okay you're in a you know you're in a dive bar or something and everyone's turned into zombies and there's werewolves and. They have these incredible miniatures um, that are built for these episodes that are just like, God damn, that's, I guess that's what you get with fucking internet startup, buddy. I guess that's why College Humor went under, because they spent so much on these mm-hmm. amazing uh, sets where it's like, oh yeah, this is a uh, this scene takes place in a video arcade, and they have this like tiny little miniature video arcade with the grid and everything. Um, I have never played D&D. I've not, I've, my experience with tabletop stuff is basically nil um and i found it very easy to follow and very compelling and it's just really incredible and it was it was especially funny we got hbo max and i was like trying to find like oh what are all these hbo shows that people are raving about or whatever and so many of them like the outside was just like oh this is so terrible like this is so bad and like this is to me (laughs) it's not a tv show but like this to me is because you in your mind's eye you know you're as as you're following them playing the game, you're seeing these scenes in your head. Like this to me is the best TV show 
<laughs> of like the past five years or something like that. It's incredible. <laughs> so uh, Fantasy High is the name of this particular thing. They have they have one season, and I think they're season two. I don't remember. I think that might have been interrupted by COVID. So I don't know if season two mm-hmm. is complete or ongoing or what the status well, of that is. Well, and it is. was also interrupted by, from what I understand, it was also interrupted by just the fact that the parent company. Right. Okay. okay. So that would explain why it's its own separate like YouTube channel then. Okay. So. Yeah. yeah and we watched the, Christine and I watched the uh, Um Actually game show a lot and that's become its own channel. Now. <laughs> I can't do it. I watched the movie version of Um Actually and I become... The whole the joke of um actually is that it's a trivia show where you, <laughs> they are given a fact and then something inside of this fact is wrong and people have to correct it by going um actually Midnight Cowboy was rated X or something like that. So we yeah. watch so we watch the movie version and I became like the joke is that they're like becoming insufferable nerds. But I became like a million <laughs> times more insufferable than all of them because I was just like, what are you talking Oh, you don't know? You don't know about this about Casablanca? Of course it's based off of a play. Duh. Like, I had to turn it off because I, I became too much of an asshole. But, uh. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's, uh. I, I've, I've heard Brendan Lee Mulligan on my favorite podcast, Dr. Game Show, in the past. He was a guest and, uh, he, he was quite funny. And I, you know, even though the, the the tabletop fantasy D and D stuff never really appealed to me, a lot of my a lot of my friends in high school they were either playing Dungeons and Dragons or Magic the Gathering, uh-huh. and I couldn't I couldn't get into either of them. And I I tried once, and it was like, so you got to be really quick with your imagination, and it takes me a long time to process information and think of things. So I am going to suck. <laughs> this I, it is I didn't start until I was in my thirties. And it is so much math mm. that I've that when I play, it's more it's to hang out with my friends. We do it on Zoom now, and uh, I've basically come to picking a character based on the least yeah. math I have. Well, that's to do. that's the other thing about this being like a produced, edited uh, YouTube show is that they can cut off all they can like edit around all the points where people are just like adding one number to another number. They can just cut uh-huh. to okay, that passed. Okay, that failed. <laughs> I need to find my character yeah. sheet. Hold on. I think I can do I, this thing. I, I <laughs> yeah. really like the idea of like actual play uh, role-playing podcasts, but a lot of them, either I'm not into the setting, like I don't like fantasy settings at all, which is why I like this, because it is a hybrid fantasy modern day where it's like, instead of cell phones, they have crystals, but it like basically functions like cell phones. And, um, you know, they have motorcycles and art video arcades and stuff, but they're also mages and there are runes and, and stuff like that. Um and you don't need to know all of the backstory of like this is what a halfling is, this is what a this is. You can just sort of follow it uh, that way. Um, mm. And a lot of the a lot of the ones I've tried to listen to, they get really bogged down in the mechanics of the game. And as a and like you know, you're playing the game. That's what playing the game is. But when you're an audience member, it's like I can't do this. I can't follow this. I can't keep listening to you. Adding like uh, going. Mm, uh, what about this skill? Uh, mm, like. So this this being like a very tightly produced, even though each episode is like two hours long, um, it's still like it just whizzes by, and it's so funny, and it's so moving, and it's it's just awesome. So, I think I think an animated version of the one the Macroys do is coming to like either CBS, yeah. All Access, or HBO. I think that, yeah, they've already been I like graphic. It's, that's called the Adventure Zone. That's their podcast. The Adventure yeah. Zone. I I like Adventure Zone, but I mean I'm not gonna. Everybody already knows. Yeah. We don't we don't need to hype up. I am not. I'm not a McElroy <laughs> fan, so I've not tried it. But that yeah. show might be great for all I know. Uh, 
Yeah, well, well, it was exactly what you're saying. If they're cutting out everything unnecessary and just doing an animated version of it with all the best yeah. bits, that would be pretty cool. Yeah, so I've been I've been getting some interesting screeners as of late, and uh, I'm, I'm trying to review like new titles mainly uh, on the show. But I, I won't go into like extensive reviews of a couple of movies that I've written reviews for. Uh, but let's just let's just say one of them is definitely one of the more interesting horror thrillers about like mental degradation that I've seen in a while called the swerve with um, a really great lead performance by Azura sky that I've written a review for. So people can check that out at VoicesVisions.net. Um, if you're a fan of like uh, Polanski's repulsion, I think this will be right up your alley. I, I just, but again, it's not a pleasant experience. Um, sort of a little bit along the lines of she, uh, yeah, she dies tomorrow, but I wanted to, hmm. um, recommend something that just came out i think even just uh, just yesterday um especially since it's it's kind of it's it's a lot of fun and it's one of those movies you can watch uh during this season and it's the latest from jim cummings whose work i am not very familiar with but i because i know he had a, a movie last year called thunder road that i never caught up with that everybody seemed to say was really great um so i am going to catch up with it now because i've seen his latest film called the wolf of snow hollow and okay yeah haven't even heard of this jim and i'm i'm I'm, yeah it's 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 excellent it's it's quite good it's got um the final performance we'll see from the great robert forrester so uh oh yeah yeah. it's 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 very moving in that regard um and he's great as always but it's it's essentially you know a werewolf movie who uh may or may not be the murderer here that uh the lead character is pursuing um, but I mean, to, like to me, I'll, and I'll, I'll describe the plot. It's very simple, but it, what this movie ultimately becomes is kind of this interesting exercise in tone management because it's so many things, but it manages to do them all pretty well. I know I've read a couple of reviews that disagree with that, that saying like, oh, this is overstuffed and there's too much going on. But I mean, for me, the plot is simple. It's just, you know, people keep dying in this small town and rumors start to fly that a wolf or a creature or an animal or something could be killing everyone. So it's up to um, this uh, aspiring sheriff played by Jim Cummings to essentially solve the case here. And it's part X-Files and... Uh, what was I? Sounds like it has a little Jaws. Yeah, yeah, the- it's, yeah, I can see that too. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's, he's motive. Like I said, he's motivated in part by trying to become the next sheriff and, you know, because his father was, he was the sheriff and he's kind of ailing now and, um, you know, may, may or may not be passing on, but he's really struggling. Um, he, he's a really complicated character in that, you know, he's a recovering alcoholic and he tends to be an asshole. So there are times where he lashes out at his daughter. There's times when he lashes out at his coworkers. Um, he's just like always on edge and, you know, kind of a dick sometimes, but I think that's what makes him more human at the same time. Like it, it never really goes into like caricature zone in the way that he portrays everybody. Uh, like everybody seems really human and has their own struggles and stuff. Uh, and you know, like I said, he's, he's got a college bound daughter who just wants to be a normal teenager and he's got a complicated relationship with his father. Um, but obviously in the midst of all this, people are getting killed and it becomes like this murder mystery. Um, 
yeah, like a, a little bit of little bit of Jaws, but a little bit of memories of murder kind of a thing going on because you're trying to figure out what's going on and what is the deal with this creature responsible for all these killings. But it kind of shows how ridiculous and selfish and inept cops can be in situations like this where they don't have an easy answer and that causes them to get more frustrated and and. But at the same time, it's also a dark comedy. So, you know, clearly he was inspired by things like The Howling and American Werewolf in London. Um, mm-hmm. But there's also like a real tenderness here that surprised me. You know, there's the father-son dynamic, the father-daughter dynamic, and him trying to like deal with his uh, alcoholism. So, yeah, there's definitely a lot going on, but at the same time, I thought he directed some, this material quite well. There's some inventive cinematography and, like, quick edits. It's really well-paced. Uh, it's only 80 minutes long, too, uh, and yet a lot happens. Uh, if, if there's a quibble that I have, it's not necessarily suspenseful or incredibly scary. Um, mm-hmm. it's just, it's just shocking, you know, like the wolf will just jump out of nowhere and attack somebody, but there's not a lot of build up or tension to that necessarily. So I don't think he succeeded in making this movie like a, you know, classic horror movie that's going to scare you, but he made kind of like an interesting murder mystery with some, you know, tonal shifts that something like werewolf in London has, but uh, I, I definitely think this is worth seeing. It's 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 a it's a cool little genre of picture. You know, we don't get a lot of werewolf movies nowadays, and it's also a really nice showcase for Forrester, who gets to show like a really good wide range of conflicting emotions too. Um, but yeah, yeah, you you can tell that like I think Cummings cares more about the people and the characters and the actors, maybe to a detriment because he doesn't really invest in like scares. Uh, but I, at the same time, I was like, oh, this is really kind of a humane movie while also being, you know, a, a cool little genre pick. So I'm definitely going to check out his other work, and I, I definitely think people will get a kick out of this one. It's, it's, it's quite, quite well done, and I'm, I'm recommending it. The Wolf of Snow Hollow. Okay, and, and just for because I had to do it for my own sake, uh, Jim Cummings, the director, is not Jim Cummings, the voice of Darkwing Duck. Those are different guys. I had to look <laughs> it up. What? Yeah, like I said, I don't think I've seen him in anything this before. This is bullshit. No, that, this movie sounds really bad. I was imagining it starring the <laughs> guy who did the voice of Darkwing Duck. I was imagining it being some 68-year-old voice actor, and instead it's some other guy. Fuck that. No thanks. <laughs> well, his Sorry, last his just, last movie got a lot I'm of like, awards. Jim you know who got a lot of awards? Winnie the Pooh, the guy that Jim Cummings also did the voice. Cummings of. also voices. <laughs> Highly acclaimed bear, Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> best honey paw. Uh, best lack of pants. <laughs> He's also uh, Pete uh, from uh, Goofy, uh, the Goof Troop. Okay. I could go through it. He's singing voice of Scar. Oh, the singing voice uh, of Scar. Not related to this other so guy. So he's the one who ripped yeah. off Leonard Cohen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's not just me, right? Be prepared is a total ripoff yeah. of First We Take Manhattan. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, Jim Cummings it, says he's Leonard really Cohen, inspired but, by um, Alan Partridge, which I can kind of see. I can kind of see that. Jim Cummings. So, he's, mm-hmm. so it, when you call, he's sort of like this asshole who lashes out at people around him does he do it in that sort yes. of alan partridge kind of way 
Yeah. I think he still he does it in his own way. I don't I wouldn't call it like, you know, derivative of that. I just it's it's you can tell that he's he's kind of re- reaching for that level of like you know, you you don't want to you don't want to have too much sympathy for the guy. <laughs> he's he's like trying to make him a little bit more layered and complex and there there are times where you will hate him. And I think that actually works in its favor. Yeah, this the the other Jim Cummings I'm looking at his Wikipedia and uh he uh, has domestic abuse allegations. So, uh he's also one Winnie that you the can Pooh? Hate, even though he's the voice Winnie of the Pooh. Winnie the Pooh is yeah, canceled. Pooh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, apparently. Oh no. Oh. What about Rue? Uh, I think that Rue changes. I think that Rue is a literal child. Oh, that's right. And they just get they a different keep, child. They to just, it's like it's it's like uh, the National Lampoon Vacation series. They, every time they reboot yeah, Winnie the exactly. Pooh, there's a new Rue. God, we're so off topic now. But I just there's a show called Gumball on on oh, Cartoon sure. Network, and they they keep rebooting. The the kids' voices keep changing. So I think they're on their third. And then they always make a meta joke about it. It's really funny. <laughs> so Gumball and uh, uh, Darwin, his his adopted brother, who's a fish, they, their voices have changed, I think, three times now. And you just sort of get used to it. And I, I kind of like that they've just told the child audience that, like, yeah, this is what happens now. <laughs> it's not like the old days when I was a kid and it was some lady doing a terrible or some lady doing a terrible child's voice in a Lucio Fulci movie. I just found the best way for us to you might as well let's i'm, I'm gonna let you take it away gabe <laughs> but i was i was wanting to picture winnie the pooh in a werewolf movie that's what i wanted to picture next but okay <laughs> i mean the if you you want to picture winnie the pooh in a werewolf movie all you really need to do is just sort of look at that uh uh tigger that first scene he encounters tigger where he's, it's like that scary night, yeah, and, he and he gets jumped. jumped. Like, just imagine Tigger mauled Winnie the Pooh, and his stuffing flew everywhere. I mean, I mean, and then Jim Cummings is also Tigger, really? so like, you would save uh, money. Tigger's yeah. canceled. Oh no! Yeah, I'm Damn it! What's Billy? Yeah, what's the original Winnie the Pooh and Tigger? What's Billy dead? West up to? Is someone monitoring Billy West? He he just seems like a general kind of slight asshole, but I, I don't I'd never heard anything like distinctly terrible about Billy West. So you're so he's just sort of like that innate sarcasm you hear in the Billy West voice is is, is him. him, yeah. Yeah. It's okay. fair. Which, you know, isn't too bad. <laughs> anyway. We abandoned we, we abandoned we that uh, segue. We abandoned that segue pretty quick. <laughs> That's all my fault. I ruin segues. That's that's what I do. Yeah. That's part of my charm. It's just like this pile of broken down. Uh, I don't even know what a Segway. There uh, is a Segway. The thing that's uh, like a little scooter. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's the one you stand yeah. on. You lean forward. Yeah, it's just a pile of those. What's the name of that on. actor who's in Futurama? Now that we're here. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I feel like every child in Futurama is voiced by the same woman. Yes, and she used to work on the Simpsons. Yeah, exactly. And I feel like mm. there's a hundred cartoons I watched as a kid that had that exact voice. Um, she's the voice of Slappy Squirrel, too, uh, okay. I believe. Tress, Tress, Tress McNeil. McNeil. How is she doing? She's fine. She's she still working. She didn't sign see. that she... J.K. Rowling letter, did she? Can we still like Trish McNeil? <laughs> I, I don't think she okay. did. <laughs> Oh no! She uh, she's coming back as Dot in the Animaniacs Hulu reboot. An, uh, I 
Of course there is. Oh, I I don't know why. I, oh, yeah, every everything's. And she's also, she's Daisy Duck and the Ducktales re- uh-huh. reboot on Disney Channel. Oh Lord. <laughs> Mr. Peabody and Sherman show reboot. She's like three characters. Oh, At I'm some sorry. point, I went uh, down a rabbit hole where I found like fan blogs of people who are super into uh, voice actors from cartoons. Uh, and uh-huh. that is just the weirdest thing in the world to me. Yeah, I, I've definitely been there, though. <laughs> I admit, I've been there. You know, when I was when I was watching this this movie, I had realized that the first monster I'd ever seen was in fact a werewolf from the Michael Jackson movie video. That was my first exposure to any monster creature, uh, anything. Because like I think it was like five or something. He's kind of like a cat wolf. Like a, yeah, a I guess cat. it depends on. Yeah. It, there's a section where. I, I guess it depends. It doesn't. He. I guess. Yeah. No. No. You're right. He's like a. Cat and then wolf. he turns into a zombie too. Right. At the end. Yeah. Double monster. He's flexible. Hmm. Did Rick Baker do the effects on that video? Of course he yeah, did. For sure. Did that? That was also the first uh, like making of. Yeah. I'd ever seen mm-hmm. with, with John Landis. Yeah. It played on regular TV. I was just old enough. I mean, I got I personally I was shocked and offended. And then I saw that little uh, disclaimer at the beginning that said that Michael Jackson does not endorse belief in the supernatural. And I was like, oh, thank God. He's still a good job. Oh, Michael Jackson is such a good man. <laughs> I said to myself. Oh, thank boy. goodness. You know who else is probably a, a, or was a pretty good man? You know what? You better not say Lucio Fulci because that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly what I was going for. All right. <laughs> See, I ruined segues. <laughs> Let's talk about this oh, guy dear. that uh, I'm glad we're talking about today. You could call him Lucio. The, the, the Billy West of Italian horror directors. <laughs> <laughs> he definitely was a grumpy yeah. man. Fulci. Mm-hmm. Lucio yeah. Fulci. Fulci. Yeah, yeah you're right. Yeah. Lucio Fulci. Fulci. Yes. Fulci. He made crazy movies in all kinds of genres. Cooby and so gross. Zombie. Don't torture a duckling. Handman hats and baby. The psychic beyond. Well, it's 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 funny um, that in a way I'm beginning this introduction since I'm definitely the least familiar with Fulci on the panel today. But I'm curious, I am the Jim. Host. Jim, I wanted to know. I'm going to interrupt. I'm I'm hijacking this. Hey, Jim, get the fuck out of here. I'm I'm, I'm choosing this now. <laughs> I want to know 
Jim Laskowski, what was your experience with Fulci before you started prepping for this podcast? Well, I'd seen The Beyond, but quite a long time ago when I wasn't the cinephile that I am because Tarantino re-released it on his Rolling Thunder label. Mm-hmm. And I just seen, I just rented anything that was coming out on that label at the time because I'm like, you know, Tarantino nut and just wanted to see whatever he recommended. And that was, I was, I had no idea what was going on and what to expect. And it was, I don't, I don't know if I'd seen Suspiria by that point. I don't think so. So I don't, I didn't get it. <laughs> I was like, you, you were like Roger Ebert. Roger Ebert famously hated it when he saw it on that place. And you know who else is not a fan at all is uh, uh previous guest, Sergio Mims. I, I listened to a podcast where he was talking and I think it was probably an episode of movie madness or something where he goes, you know who I can't stand. You know who I think is a hack Lucio Fulci. I don't get why people love him so much. Um, <laughs> So I yeah I've 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 heard both sides I've I've heard people who absolutely love him and I've heard people who hate him and well I mean really I think I'd only seen the Beyond and Zombie for for quite a long time and I I certainly remained curious I mean we we definitely his name came up when we did talk Bava and Argento and of course it made sense that I eventually was going to catch up with his filmography and I'm glad that I have because now I am definitely a fan. Um, you know, and it's, it's funny because like, I, 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 I think I keep doing this show for, for two reasons, curiosity and passion. I am curious about film and I remain passionate to discover more. And Fulci is definitely a new favorite discovery having watched, I think about seven or eight films and there's dozens more (laughs) to get through. Yeah. Uh, so like, yeah, I didn't, I didn't get to like his Westerns or, uh, was it Conquest and Contraband? Like, there's so much to dive into, and I hear that they're just as insane as, you know, like his Gates of Hell trilogy and uh, um, his other work. But I I was really curious to start off with his uh, Giallo here because uh, I don't remember where I heard about a lizard in a woman's skin first. I'm trying to think, but I can't remember. It might have been on a podcast, uh, but... You know, I. It was probably me. It was probably me. Yeah, it probably was. Um, (laughs) But yeah, so the first film we're going to talk about kind of affirmed something in me. And I've kind of always said over the years, like, yeah, you know what? I have a lot in common with my dad, but I really have very little in common with my mom. But you know what? I have to face the fact that, like my mom, I really love weird, twisty, implausible, erotic psycho thrillers. I don't like. I don't know. It might that probably could explain why I can enjoy something like Femme Fatale, and I see a little bit of De Palma um, in, in in a lot of these giallos, of course. Oh yeah, but yeah, but um, well, yeah. That, that's I was not expecting a connection to one's mother uh, <laughs> to come up this early in a Fulci podcast. That's pretty exciting, actually. Well, yeah, I like, but. <laughs> Over the years, I, I, you know, my mom will be watching these. Like when I live with her, if I would be coming downstairs and going through the kitchen or something, she'd be watching like a lot of crazy, <laughs> like a lot of crazy '80s and nine, like your Jagged Edge and your Unlawful Entries and all this stuff. And I'm like, Mom, what's mm-hmm. what's the deal with these movies? Why do you like them so much? And she really didn't have an answer. She's just like, I don't know. I just find them entertaining. And I think that's my that's my review of Femme Fatale. Was like, I don't know. 
it doesn't make sense. <laughs> it's just, you know, yeah. but I just I'm entertained by it, and I can't say exactly why. But um, with 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 this one, uh, I just it, it really unnerved me from right pretty much right from the beginning. I found myself a little little anxious with the dream uh, sequence, how it starts off on this crowded train and it it goes into this crowded party and then it becomes this really surreal and kind of sexy uh, seduction sequence that I'm just like, I am on board for whatever's going on in this film. It's so it's, it's working for, for me right at the start because there's not only, you know, his sort of trademark surreality going on, but there's also a mystery that you can latch onto. I mean, there's, there's certainly like dream logic type stuff and sequences throughout here, but it, it also works as a narrative and it also works as something where you're questioning if what's really happening is really real. And I actually felt like, you know, a lot of empathy for, for Carol and, you know, there's, just like this internal struggle that you can clearly see she's going through. Um, but also in terms of technique, I was totally on board. Uh, a, a lot of crazy, audacious, you know, split diopter and deep space compositions and crazy, like, handheld camera at random moments, like when they're at the dinner table and all of a sudden it goes to handheld. And I'm just, like, feeling that sort of confusion and terror throughout this entire movie. Uh, so... Yeah, we can talk more about his career in general, because uh, I know he started off doing these wacky comedies, but I, I, I feel like this is a good place to start in terms of, yeah. you know, his strengths. Well, the the thing is, yeah, he did these comedies that were uh, kind of, they were, they were uh, series, they were franchises, and he came on to them as writer and then became director. And they are the... Um, early 60s early to mid 60s brand of italian humor that i don't think travels well uh so i don't want to dismiss them outright because it is part of his career but he was sort of just doing them to do them and i just i don't think that most modern americans are going to find them even a little bit funny or english speakers not american as english speakers they're very googly-eyed uh uh oh my god you see that woman's underwear uh, type stuff. They're like, you know, it's, it's a Cheech and Chong movie, <laughs> <laughs> kind of without the pot. Um, it they're they're really hard to deal with. I've I've only seen a couple of them, but most of them you, you can't even you can sort of let yourself off the hook because they're not even available in English anywhere. Period. So you you really get you can start with him. Uh, I I would say the good place to start, like you can go back, but um, his westerns are a pretty good place to start uh, just because that you start to see some of his uh, craft come out in those. But I also think Lizard in a Woman's Skin is maybe even better place to start uh, because it was the second he made four of what you'd consider classic giallos or gialli is the plural there. And, and a giallo, I guess, because we haven't really defined it, was an Italian thriller. They call them giallo based on the yellow covers of um, pulpy murder mysteries, uh, and so that that, that there was always already these pulpy murder mysteries, and a lot of them uh, were tied to there was a German type of murder mysteries that all pretended to be Edgar Wallace movies called Creamies, uh, and and Fulci actually wrote one of these Italian Creamies hmm. or Crimies. I don't know how you're supposed to say that, like as in criminal. Uh, 
called Double Face, and very soon, the same year, he made his first Giallo, which was one on top of the other, or Perversion Story. And that one yeah, I, came I out before... Yeah, and that one came out before Dario Argento's uh, The Bird with the Crystal Plumage. After Bird with the Crystal Plumage was an international hit, all of almost every Giallo started to uh, become a version Would you of say, um, so, similar to the way that there are a lot of movies pre-Halloween that you would think of as slasher movies, um, but like everything right. that followed Halloween was at least a little bit inspired by Halloween and its massive success? Yes, exactly. So what makes... Because Fulci was, for most of his career, a director for hire. I had always been under the impression that he was sort of looked down upon, but um, newer uh, interviews and with experts and books and stuff have really painted him as more of a respected craftsman. Uh, who could get you know get the job done and probably make a little bit of money and his name would actually be on the posters but he was in it as a most most Italian like, Dario Gento was a uh, weirdo in the fact that his uh, family had roots in the Italian film industry and so he was allowed uh, more freedom and because his first movie as director was a huge hit he was allowed more freedom to create his own thing. And then all these other directors had to follow his lead. And so what makes these movies interesting is the way these directors followed the lead of the bird with the crystal plumage. And what Fulci did uh, with a lizard and a woman's skin is he took the concept in bird with the crystal plumage where um, a man has witnessed a, what he attempted murder and, the murderer has gotten away and the whole movie he keeps replaying the murder in his head because he knows he's missed some vital clue and this becomes something that happens in a lot of Argento movies and a lot of movies that were trying to be like Argento. Fulci's kind of taken it and turned it into um, literal LSD uh, uh, it, it like the 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 woman's thinking back to this murder that she may have she's afraid she has committed and the, literally LSD was involved and she had is going through psychotherapy so so there's all these layers of uh, of, of of hallucination yeah. of actual hallucination not just dealing with the way memory works but dealing with the way memory works when you're when you're dealing with hallucinogens or uh, psychotherapy that's trying to make you do uh, what is it called. Uh, I can't remember what you call it when you when you make someone like you hypnotize them and you make them think about uh, something that's happened to them already. Uh, re- is, it is it regression? Uh, regression. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Regressive. Yeah, that sort of regression therapy thing, which was pretty new, probably in 1971. Uh, so that's the basis of what makes Lizard and Woman Skin so interesting as a Giallo movie and as a Fulci movie. Everything from there is just that he's a great filmmaker. Yeah. And also his four, he did he did this, he did, like I said, one on top of the other, he did Don't Torture a Duckling, and he did uh, The Psychic, are really his four real standard Gialli. And they all have much better scripts than a lot of what came out around this time. And he always had a co-writing credit, and so I'm, I've never been sure on how much writing he did himself. Uh, there's always an issue with Italian movies of this era where people just don't get any credit for some of the work they do. Uh, but there was always an interesting, something interesting about the twist. And in this case, I don't know how much of it you want to I ruin. I think we should talk about the movie as a whole and just say spoilers for this Giallo movie from 1971 that uh, personally, I don't think that 
knowing what I I don't think that the movie changes much think... from by knowing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I agree. I agree. So wait, well, yeah, the idea here is that she's because it's a uh, committed a crime. <laughs> yes, and that's and that's the fine line with the Gialli movie. Gialli is is that you have to be preposterous, but still be sort of smart about your preposterousness. Like it, it, like some of them will just be so preposterous that it's laughable, and other them others won't be preposterous enough, so they might as well just be a made-for-TV uh, like episode of Columbo. Or something yes. like that. I think uh, that Fulci's all have a theme to them. Mm. And so Lizard and Woman's Skin, the theme is uh, that this woman is being framed for murder. And she's not sure if she can trust herself. And what the twist is at the end is that she did commit the murder. And not only that, but she was sort of feigning everything. And so she was a super unreliable narrator for us. Because we watched the whole movie from I think the funny thing about this movie to me is I think that is Fulci has this sort of when he actually tries to do jokes or whatever, it like never works. But like when he Mm -hmm. he has this really great sense of irony. um, And I think Mm -hmm. that this is sort of a meta joke. The idea because like there is a mountain of evidence saying that she is the murderer. Um, And. Mm -hmm. If you are someone who watches murder mysteries, that's when you go, ah, she must be being framed. Because, of course, she's not the murderer um, because she's the lead character. And why would they present the lead character? Like, it's not a twist if the lead character, the person who with the most who's most likely to have done it, did it. Um, So I feel like this is almost a meta joke on the audience. uh, Just assuming there's something else going on. There's a scene where the detective, uh, two detectives are discussing the case. They're walking down these stairs. It's just like. It's like, well, there's fingerprints all over, and this coat she left was hers, and her footprints were there, and the night and the murder weapon was hers, and she lives in the same building. And he's like, ah, yes, but what about motive? <laughs> it's like, yeah. and, it's, and it's kind of hilarious. Um, and it, you in know. some weird way, I thought of, uh, <laughs> I thought of. In, in the in the movie The Prestige, when Michael Caine actually spells out the twist to the audience, we don't want to believe. Like, oh yeah, he's using a double, and Michael Caine actually yeah. says that in the movie. And I'm just like, well, no, that can't be it. Of course, that can't be it. And then here, it's like the same thing where, yeah, it, it seems like all the evidence is mounting against her, and of course, it actually turns out that she is <laughs> the murderer. So, yeah, it's interesting to have that and. The other one that I, I remember, because this was a, this was probably the last good to great, depending on your opinion. I think it's great uh, Fulci movie to really be seen by fans. It was not available in the U.S. at all. It was only bootlegs, and even the DVD that came out in the mid two thousands was edited version. So it really took, and I I don't remember what year it was like. Probably two thousand seven or eight before we finally got a widescreen uncut version so that that it had a huge reputation just coming down already um and i managed to lose my train of thought there i don't remember where that was i think it is interesting talking generally about fulci and sort of italian genre film um the idea of a lot of these movies uh their reputations because their releases stateside or the releases in a lot of English-speaking countries were limited or they would be released edited in a weird way under a different title uh, or something. A lot of these movies are sort of... These are these are directors, uh, especially Fulci, 
that were sort of discovered on the internet and were part of like internet film mm-hmm. culture was like every time Anchor Bay released a new, you know, Dario Argento movie, it was this event because uh, a lot of these movies, especially when you're talking about VHS, you're talking about uh, a format where most movies you watch are full screen and you're talking about Italian genre films are very much about using the full widescreen. Um, to the point yeah, where, if you watch a Luci- good, the bad, yeah, if you watch a Lucio Fulci movie <laughs> specifically in full screen, all you are seeing is the bridges of noses because he has a million close-ups of eyes. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I, I think I think something interesting about I would say if there is sort of a like big three in terms of names of not Italian genre because that would include like Sergio Leone, but Italian horror, um, right. you would say it's Dario Argento, Mario Bava, and Lucio Fulci. Um, and I feel like Fulci is unique in that he is the one who is still, like, disreputable. Like, he has a big reputation now right. among horror fans. And it's not, you know, like, the the number one mainstream, you know, horror streaming site, Shudder, has a bunch of Lucio Fulci movies. So it's not like he's unknown. It's not like he's underground. But there is nothing that is, like... Uh, Luca, uh, what's his name, is never going to remake a Fulci movie. And in fact, I don't think any Fulci movies have been remade. No, the closest is, uh, oh, geez, uh, the one Guggenheim made, Ted Guggenheim, uh, uh, We Are Still Here is a, is, is a sort of pseudo remake of, uh, of multiple Fulci movies, they even name the characters the same, but it's really more of an right. homage. Than so, a like Fulci is not uh, a polite filmmaker. His movies have no uh, easily visible redeeming social value, which is not to say they're like apolitical. He he has political ideas. It's not to say that they're you know that they're not thoughtful. Like there are there are themes uh, and specific you know aesthetic tactics that he uses from film to film that shows that he was a highly skilled and highly intelligent filmmaker he just operates in a in a method that uh if you're not mm-hmm. if you're not really tuned into it it can kind of just look like a cheap laughable mess um but like i yeah, i kind of love i kind of love fulci that uh sorry i, I kind of love that fulci is still just like uh you know, uh, any your local newspaper when they say here are some horror movies to watch, they're going to mention Suspiria. You know, like Dario Argento yeah. is absolutely a any given cinephile has. You know, he's been he's been reclaimed by uh, respectable film critics and everything, and no respectable film critic is really going to uh, go to bat for the New York Ripper. It, it even took. <laughs> It even took Bava a while. Bava was considered more of a just just a mm-hmm. craftsman. It really took a concerted effort on like the on Martin Scorsese oh, was really? one of the people who brought everybody around. That's on funny. Bava. I yeah. always assumed Bava he was, just, was considered just considered a, 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 dude. a great from because in Italy he was Not in really. Italy. Yeah, in Italy he every all the other the thing with Bava is in Italy all the filmmakers yeah. loved him, but hmm. he wasn't exactly a big name household name. But Argento again, Argento gets all these advantages. Being the son of a big time mm-hmm. producer, uh, he has all these advantages in his, throughout his career that Fulci doesn't have, and I think that's part of why uh, fans like to like, especially in the early days when we couldn't get a hold of this stuff, and you'd read about it in Fangoria, and you'd have to like order bootleg tapes from the back pages of Fangoria or the internet. Um, 
you sort of have a Dario Argento versus Lucio Fulci thing because they are one is is privileged, given lots mm-hmm. of money, given success uh, internationally, and the other one had to fight for everything he got. Uh, has a miserable life where his wife dies young. Not just dies young; his wife commits suicide. Yes, his wife commits suicide. He Oof. has to raise two girls by them himself. One of them falls off a horse and gets partially paralyzed. Um, he has a heart attack young. Uh, it's just thing after thing after thing. So it, it's easy to want them to be yeah. in competition with each other. And I think Fulci actually made that worse because he would complain. Uh, if if anybody in America in particular would want to talk to him and they would ask about Argento, he'd say, ah, Argento's a hat, fuck Argento. <laughs> just because he didn't want to talk about Dario Argento anymore. <laughs> um, so there was this whole thing like, like you have to be one or the other. And it's they really they complement each other in an interesting way. Uh, and I think like exactly what Patrick's saying, I think Fulci is this sort of like center point between the classy and this, the absolute garbage. Like he's, <laughs> he's the, the trip on the way to, uh, Umberto Lenzi and Ruggiero Diodato and eventually Joe yeah. Donato. And, and, uh, uh, you know, at the very bottom, you got Bru- Bruno Mattai and, uh, Claudio Fergrasso who did like, uh, troll, troll two, you know, like best worst movie. So there's like this sort of sliding scale. And uh, when you're a teenager, you just want to watch the most yeah. violent. <laughs> of course. Yeah. So you watch you watch Fulci and you watch you don't actually I didn't watch uh, a lot of Bava because his weren't particularly violent. They're more evocative and they're older. Um, but you you'd watch as many Fulci as you could get your hands on. And they would be satisfyingly violent. And then you'd watch, uh, you know, your Joe D'Amato. Your, well, it was called Buried Alive on video. It was Beyond the Darkness on DVD these days. Uh, was another one that was super fucking gross, but also well made. And then you'd have all your horrible uh, cannibal movies. And so growing up, I always had this thing in mind that I was going to eventually outgrow all those movies. And, and unfortunately, that would include... Fulci and I would become just like the Bava guy. And it's funny, the it's not that I fell off with Bava. I definitely fell off with Argento the older I got, but I also started to appreciate so much more about Fulci. And I don't know I don't know the correlation. It's the same thing where someone tells you you're gonna be more conservative as you grow up. <laughs> and as I've gotten older, I've actually gotten more radical. And and so there's something about Fulci. I mean, Fulci himself was a com- and a practicing communist. It's not in. It's not in the the, the no, fibers of these. We're not movies, saying that we love them because it. they're leftists, but they are yeah, outs- yeah. Right. They are outside and they are uh, indignant. They are movies that feel almost spiteful sometimes. Yes, and and so, but there's something that connects that. There's something about yeah. that mentality. There's just that, that piss and vinegar, right? Like there's just that uh, yeah. sort of, um, you know, to tie it to a different country in a different era like there is that feeling of like watching a dennis hopper movie or something where it's just like Mm -hmm. he's not the best filmmaker but he is like the angriest (laughs) yeah and he's 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 yeah and unlike him folks you tapped into something it took him a while to get there uh but he tapped into something with people i think uh but then he continued to make like his white fang movies were basically kids movies um and he made more of those comedies 
after Lizard in a Woman's Skin. I'm not clear on if this was a big hit for him. I don't think no. it was. It was probably a reasonable hit. But the fact that it never got an American video release, even though I have the poster I got from when, when I was in Chicago, I have yeah, the Schizoid poster. It did get, a, it did in, get a North American my, release. Right, so there was a theatrical release, and it was a very edited also. It takes of it, place in London, even though it is the least convincing. <laughs> like there are some. Sh- <laughs> that's another really, but that that's another weird Argentoism is that um, it, it actually goes back to Bava. All these movies always have to be somebody from out of town. So it's either an American or a Londoner in Italy, or an Italian or Spaniard in London or America. It's just, it, it was one of those affectations, like, I have to rip off this thing about Argento. Argento did this. He had names of animals in his really long title, The Bird with the Crystal Plumage, A Lizard yeah, in a yeah, Woman's yeah. Skin. And and we actually have to say the title at some point for no apparent reason. Um, I think- well, I was wondering, too, uh, because, like, I, I do get the sense that he was an angry person or at the very least went through a lot in his life that would have made him, you know, create some of the material that he's gone on to create. And I think, Mm -hmm. but I mean, I I wonder, you know, besides the fact that I heard that he's, he was very hard to work with. I get the, I get the impression and maybe this isn't true for the New York Ripper, but I, I get the impression that he does have a lot of empathy for women because a lot of his stories really do come from their perspective, especially with Lizard yeah. and a woman's skin. To where I'm like, I was really surprised. And like the, the early part of the film kind of reminds me a little bit of like uh, James Franco, or not James Franco, <laughs> Jess Franco. Noted feminist, like sort of de- <laughs> James Franco. <laughs> <laughs> and like, de- and like he, it's like he's depicting, you know, forbidden sexuality emerging as this like subliminal force. And, you know, C- Carol's like, perspective throughout this movie is very strong and yet at the same time obviously it's about you know her she's psychologically breaking down too so um, a, but i'm just i'm wondering about well, what you think well of there that. are ideals and there is practice which is you know he he was a he was raised in a family of women he was raised by his mother and sisters and stuff and he tells stories about that and his movies generally speaking were not misogynist uh, in the way that a lot of Italian genre films were, um, right. they, uh, I, in fact, I think New York Ripper is someone's. It's a it's a standout, in but that. it's also yeah. like it's satirically so, like it's it's so over yeah, the top and this is what you and think silly. I am, yeah. Um, but at the same time, like he is someone who treated actors terribly, especially female actors terribly. Um, you know, he it was just it's a common. It's funny because everyone's always being diplomatic, and but like, and I think I think part of the fun for, of being like a British actor or uh, someone working in Italy is just that the sets are so much crazier. Like the British film industry is very notoriously very regimented, where it's like we have an hour long tea break, mm-hmm. we have to do this, this, and mm-hmm. it's like everything is done by the book. And I think Italy, it was just like kind of a, a, a wild shooting style that I think a lot of those actors have fondness for, but. The flip side of that uh, is that they tell these stories uh, and they're just sort of like, well, of course there was the day he made me cry. Like, he made everyone cry at least once. Yeah. <laughs> um, there is a scene, I, I, there's a, there is a anecdote from one actor, and, I've, this is, and this is later in his career where he got, he sort of got worse and worse and he got sort of angrier at the world uh, as his, you know, the, we're talking about Lizard in a Woman's Skin is sort of the beginning of him discovering his voice and discovering the thing that would ultimately make him very profitable and very successful in the industry. 
and respected. Um, but then that eventually went the other way, and the end of his career is him having no respect and having alienated everyone he ever worked with, and um, and he got you know angrier and more and more bitter. Um, and the stories that you hear from the later films that he made in the late '80s, early '90s are almost universally like he was just this terror and he was awful to work with. And there is there is one story of an actor, and I can't remember. I think this might be Zombie Three, but there was a woman who. It's a scene where she's getting choked, and he didn't like it, and he made her do it like 15 times or whatever and didn't like it, and he took the person who was playing the zombie or whatever who was choking her aside, uh, and then they did it again, but this time he actually choked her uh, with a chain or whatever, and... Yeah, I heard about that, too. And so, like, you don't want to... You don't want to sort of whitewash uh, Lucio Fulci's life and try to paint him as uh, some sort of great man or someone who didn't do fucked up shit or whatever. Uh, so I, I do at least want to make that clear. Um, but I do think yeah. that this is a movie in particular that is empathizing with the main character. In fact, another much more problematic filmmaker uh, is who I thought of, which is, this is Repulsion. Um, this is, oh, Repulsion mm-hmm. to me is the clearest influence on this movie, uh, especially mm-hmm. the way he uses handheld cameras to depict... Uh, there, you know, his camera work, it's very oblique. He, uh, just generally, his aesthetic is sort of about um, making things uh, sort of obfuscated and difficult to understand. Like, a shot will start on a close-up, and then it will slowly zoom out, and someone will walk into frame, and it will track them, and then it will zoom back in on someone else. And by the end of the shot, you're like, I have no idea what the geography of this room is. Um, and, you know, that, that goes... Yeah, it's very disorienting. Uh, yeah. And, of course, that would go on to be, like, the way his later films, their narratives aren't don't really connect or whatever. Um, so yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. This this film, I, I, one thing about the, that, that ties into that is that Lizard and Woman's Skin, we never get an authentic vision of the, of yeah. the murder. It's always uh, through some sort of filter, some sort of something changes, and it, clearly they filmed it over and over, so it's slightly different every time. It's a very interesting way of doing it. That again, I think was reacting to Argento, but that's um, just but a like guess. so, I was using I was talking about the camera because I wanted to point out like he has very specific ideas. He is not someone who's just like ah, put the camera anywhere. He has very specific visual ideas, and they aren't necessarily as grand or as expensive or as tightly controlled as like an Argento idea. He does not really do the equivalent of, I think it's that shot in Tenebrae where Ten- it's like Tenebrae with, with the crazy yeah. crane shot and everything like, but he has very specific ideas of, and this is something that all interviews with his collaborators have. They all mention he was known as like this great technical mind. Like he just understood film. He understood photography. Um, so you have these very controlled, very specific shots, but then when you get into the sequences that are about her sort of being suspicious and paranoid, they are that handheld repulsion uh, in the scenes where Catherine Deneuve is like mm-hmm. walking on the streets of London. Like you have that uh, sort of jittery, handheld, uh, anxious um, sort of camera work. And that to me is like the main style of this particular film. And I, I really, and Repulsion is also a film that goes back and forth between quote-unquote reality and these sort of elaborate surre- surrealistic nightmare kind of sequences. Um, they, they Repulsion and, 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 and Burden... Uh, sorry. Lizard and Woman's Skin, both the, the, the most 
upsetting images are not of murder, uh, but of things that the uh, main character is seeing. Too. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's for sure. I think, uh, and I think here too, it's rare that I say this in a giallo, but cutting cutting back to the cops never feels rote or like superfluous to me. Uh, I really no. think, you know, like their, their interactions are, are interesting here. And I, I also have to completely compliment Morricone's score. I, I mean, obviously a yeah. lot, through a lot of Fulci's work, the score is a standout almost every time, but here that, that score is like, Oh, I, I don't collect a whole lot of vinyl, but I might have to pick up this one on vinyl. I think it's gorgeous. Yeah, and, and and Morricone is deserves credit for. I mean, just the same way he invented spaghetti western sound, he invented the giallo sound. At least until the later seventies, when it started to sound like Goblin, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Birth of Crystal Plumage was the sound of of giallo for the longest time. And if you couldn't get um, Morricone, you would get uh, Bruno Nicolai, uh, who worked with Morricone. So there's this whole probably five to six year period where all these movies have this just wonderfully dreamy music that is all Morricone in, in spirit, even if he's not there. And I, I think Fulci uses it so well in this. I agree with you there. Um, but I also want to say just before we, we change thoughts that when you were talking about him making this, this movie from the point of view of a woman and very sympathetic to women, that is an ongoing thing in his, in his, well, the first one, not so much, but don't torture a duckling. Um, is is a very subversive movie. It's probably his most um, explicitly is, political. Yeah. Yes, and and it and it and it is definitely it's a movie that that sh- basically shames the audience for being judgmental of two women that are main characters. Uh but it, it, he presents things in a way that we it feels bad that we're being shamed because we weren't presented with all the information, but uh he he does the, there's the one woman who is the main suspect thinks herself a witch who's actually the same actress from uh who's the lead in um lizard in the woman's skin uh she is is found guilty for killing these boys and she thinks she's done it because she's done witchcraft on them but she's not the killer and so she's released and the town beats her to death and in this really um tarantino-esque scene i play funk music while she's being beaten to death in this the the first really violent movie in a Fulci movie or moment in a Fulci movie, just over the top violent. He yeah, had it's violent not necessarily the goriest moment, but it's just brutal and it goes on and on and on. Yeah, and yeah. and it become and it's clear that it's not you're not watching this for the sake of watching a woman be beaten. It's really hurtful and and I think I mean I, I suppose a lot of people could watch it and say this is just the sake of watching gory special effects but I think that that it's it's a very moving scene and that then the psychic his next giallo um is also from a woman's point of view I was view. actually going to ask and about that because doesn't the end of uh, don't torture a duckling uh I didn't finish the psychic but I saw like you know the first 15 minutes and I was like wait a minute the same death. <laughs> yeah, they have the same death where some where someone jumps off a cliff and has their face ripped off on the way yeah. down. I guess he really oh, liked that so image, good. so he did it again. He's right to like it. <laughs> it's the greatest thing I've ever seen in my life when the priest jumps off the cliff and you're like, oh yeah, and then the villain falls to his death. I've seen this in a hundred movies. Like, no, you haven't, because he slow motion bashes his face on a rock and explodes. Yeah. <laughs> 
it's a lot sadder at the yeah. beginning of the psychic because it's a yeah it's her mom but it's still pretty and the psychic i would say it it almost is is bad they maybe shouldn't have done yeah. that because the psychic's a much more subdued movie it's probably the most violent mo- moment in the entire movie actually uh but anyway they're all movies that are uh, uh they're about women women are major characters and women are even in in this one where she is the killer they are the most uh likable characters uh and he did that before argento argento started to have women as leads later he had women as killers before that <laughs> argento's first uh his his first and his third movie uh women are the killers and they're crazy women and then there's something more misogynistic about that to me uh, not not that I'm like drawing lines in the sand or right. Anything the like main that. character like of Lizard and Woman's but... Skin is not a crazed killer. It's not oh she's insane so she killed someone. She has a motive for doing mm-hmm. so. It's a mm-hmm. uh, uh, a blackmail thing. But uh, so this is um, a movie. I think even less less about sort of any kind certain women's issue, and it's more just about repression. It is about it is about mm-hmm. the super stuffy quote-unquote British, but, like, super unconvincing. Like, those apartments are so quintessential Italian. There's just, like, giant statues and busts and, like... And the stucco. <laughs> the stucco always gives it away, too. Um, it's so... Yeah, I... Every t- There's a thing about Italian genre movies, especially Giallo of this era. Like, I just feel so... It's almost like when you watch, uh, like, Brazil and the... Uh, the mise en scène—it's like so claustrophobic that you just feel anxious looking at it. Mm-hmm. There's something about those rooms where I look at them and I imagine myself living in this home, and I'm like, none of these places look comfortable at all. This is, looks like the most uncomfortable place <laughs> to live. It's like living in a museum. I, I hate the look. <laughs> it just bugs me. But um, so this is about like this super uptight, repressed uh society. I mean, this is about a woman who had, you know, she's. She has, she's had a, les- a lesbian. She has this experience a lesbian experience with her sort of free spirited uh, neighbor, who is the murder victim, um, and it is about her trying to deny that. And so these nightmares that happen, even before you know she's the killer, these are still the nightmare thing. Is is this her? Is her own desire? Um, and you have <laughs> this sort of changing of generation where the her husband's daughter from a previous marriage. Uh, is more aligned with these hippie types, um, with the swinging '60s London uh, kind of crew, um, and yeah, there's baby. This anxiety about that. And uh, <laughs> but it's also like the stuffy people are hypocrites because her husband's having an affair with mm-hmm. one of them, mm-hmm. yeah. and it's and there's there's an old woman, older woman. I don't want to say she's an old woman, but she's like in her 40s or 50s, uh, who calls and she gives some. I forget, I forget how they know her or whatever, but she gives some exposition about how the person was killed with a knife. Um, and she is having an affair with, like, her chauffeur. Um, so it is about mm-hmm. sort of... It, this is, again, lightly, so I don't want to write... I don't want to say this is, like, some great political movie or whatever, but this is Fulci, again, being ironic, looking at society, uh, and looking at sort of the repressed Catholic Italy around him and sort of commenting on the bullshit of that. Um that's a common theme for him. Like you can say that that these are politically light movies, but they are definitely movies that are about uh, the hypocrisy of the of Catholicism. He he really has said outwardly, especially 
don't torture a duckling, in which case the uh, murderer is revealed to be a Catholic priest who is murdering boys before they become sexually uh, uh, mature. That that one's pretty obvious, but all throughout his career, the, the movie's about how proper society is is a bunch of hypocrites and Catholic society is. He's very angry about this stuff. So even if you're trying to say it, uh, it's not exactly politically uh, succinct, it's, it is it is in there. It's in all of them, for a lot of them, I should say. Not yeah, maybe we that. should be thankful for Catholicism because that way it's, cre- <laughs> it's created, like, you know, this need to comment on it and just like, you know, like you said, talk about the hypocrisy through art and certainly something like the end of Don't Torture a Duckling. Uh, oh boy, you can tell that he's not happy <laughs> with, with, with no, the Catholic and, and, Church. And, and I, can't, I, I can't think of a single other Italian horror filmmaker that has, is that outward. I love, I, love, I love the hot take of we should be thankful that Catholicism fucked up so many people. <laughs> <laughs> that is a really now we have all that, is a, that is a highly spicy take there, Jim. But I, but I, I, I'm happy to hear you make it. Um, the thing about this movie, and I, I take it that I think you two are bigger fans of it than I am. I like this movie. I'm not a huge Yalo person. I think on the Billy Wilder episode, me and Jim talked about. I watched uh, All the Colors of the Dark and Your Vice is a Locked Room, uh, which I think are two. Mm-hmm. Uh, Your Vice, I think, is a good giallo, and I think All the Colors of the Dark is a great movie. Um, but I'm over... Those are Sergio, yeah, Sergio Martino. Martino, who also uh, did Torso, which is a somewhere in between giallo and slasher. And, yeah, I need to see those. And he does... And, and, and him and Fulci were both experimenting with the sort of LSD imagery around the same time. He, he did a lot more of it, though. So but, the thing yeah. about... Uh, so I'm, I, but I, I say that just to say, like my my thing with giallo is I kind of have to will myself. It's not a comfort food for me. I already talked about just like the general mm-hmm. <laughs> interior decorating, just sort of putting me on edge. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, I find that I need sort of the outrageousness of a lot of Italian genre stuff to get me through the barrier of the way that Italian films were shot at the time, which is they were shot with post sync sound. Um, they would record mm-hmm. sound on set, but that's, that sound would not be used uh, in the film itself. All the sound that you hear in an Italian movie, not just genre films, but even Fellini films, uh, you know, uh, from, from the most prestigious Italian directors down to uh, the Joe D'Amato's, they would add all the sound in sync. So they would add all the special uh, sound effects in sync. They would add dub the voices in sync, you know, which is why... Mm-hmm. They talked about this a bit on uh, Once Upon a Time in uh, Hollywood about the Tower of Babel style of filmmaking in Italy where you'd have actors. I mean, this film in particular is an Italian-German-French co-production that takes place in quote-unquote right. England. So it's all over the fucking place. Um, and they would have actors yeah. from all these different countries and they would all be speaking their own languages on set. And it would – the thing that that post-sync style does is it really alienates me from the characters. Uh, I, I feel there's already – an like I already feel there's a gap between me and a lot of foreign language films uh, because I can't, I don't know the inflections, you know, well enough. I don't know. Like when you're reading subtitles, there's just parts of the performance that you're fundamentally missing if you don't speak the language. Um, but the posting style further alienates me from the characters and the performances. And I've, I'm like hard pressed to say, think of a good performance in an Italian movie that is shot this way. It's just like, there's something in me that I really don't relate to it at all. Um, it's very difficult for me. Uh, so Giallo are not like comfort food. They're, they're, they're kind of work. Um, 
And this particular one, because it is mostly concerned with the psychology of its lead, um, and it is concerned with her scenario and her situation, like, I just can't get invested in it the way I am invested in a repulsion or something um, because Mm. of that. And the other thing is, uh, and this is, this is, I mean, this is less of a problem once Fulci gets more surreal, um, just because narrative is not really uh, a factor when you watch something like City of the Living Dead. Um, but, like, uh-huh. Italian ac- male actors are so boring. <laughs> they are, like, in the, if you're talking about the 70s, you're talking about, like, New Hollywood. You're talking about an era where all these character actors were suddenly leading men. It's like the era of Jack Nicholson and Dustin Hoffman and Robert De Niro and Al Pacino. Mm-hmm. And they're these really interesting personas, and they're not typical, handsome, square-jawed leading men. And every man in this movie, I get them mixed up immediately. Anytime a new scene starts, I cannot remember who the hell I'm looking at because they are all the identical. They have the same hair. They're all wearing suits. Like, the men in Italian movies are in uh, not, like, westerns is different, obviously. But, like, in Giallo are so boring. I can see that. Yeah. it, well, and and I think, and and again, this is probably not the intention, but I think it actually works in this movie's favor because again, it f- puts so much focus on uh, the lead and and uh, the thing you're talking about, lip sync. I think that both Gialli and spaghetti westerns benefit from a lack of dialogue yeah. a lot of the time, um, and picking actors with interesting faces. And I think the lead in this, uh, F- Florinda uh, Bulkin, has a very interesting face and a very interesting way of acting. She she basically plays the same person in several different movies, but they're all also a totally different person. But for so so to me, watching her think things through has the same appeal of watching uh Lee Van Cleef think things through in a in a yeah, Sergio Leone movie. Because they have interesting faces but what you're saying is absolutely correct and the the thing i would add about the 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 male leads in a lot of these movies being so boring is they also none of them know how to kiss and it always <laughs> me off. it's like you're watching this movie terrible that is kisses. like kind of risque for 1971 you're like oh this is kind of cutting edge <laughs> yes. in some way and then they kiss and you're like oh this is 1941 <laughs> they just press their faces into each yeah. other and like it is total them. like a 1941 <laughs> hollywood no one opens their mouth kissing um, in a movie yeah, that has full bad. frontal female nudity, it's so strange, <laughs> and it, it yeah it is, and it, and it really does throw me off, and it does become part of the appeal uh, in them, and it's part. Uh, this is unrelated because Fulci only did one of them, but the Polizio Teschi, uh, the the Euro crime movies, uh, have the problem of having these boring male leads. Uh, who got even boringer because they couldn't get Franco Nero to do them, so they got a guy who looked just like Franco Nero to do them. Uh, they have all the misogyny right on the surface. So you can't even, it's just like, it's not even just that the villains are being misogynistic and violent. It's that the heroes are now misogynistic and violent. And then you have a lot of dialogue. And so I, 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 even though I don't agree with you, Patrick, I yeah. understand where you're coming from. And so in a certain way, I do I, agree with you that, that it I definitely really, be a problem the scenes for Gia. that are like the repulsion scenes with the handheld camera. And she's like in the same room as her, you know, her daughter, her stepdaughter, and she's like, then she and her stepdaughter is talking to someone and she's like trying to figure out what they're saying and if they're talking about her. I think all of that is good. Mm -hmm. I think the pacing of this movie, the 
balance of sort of crazy surrealistic nightmare stuff that references Francis Bacon and Salvador Dali. Um, yeah, is it's it's like all of that stuff is good, and that's why I I think this is a good movie, and I think it's a good giallo film. Um, but I think like Don't Torture a Duckling is a movie that has a more compelling story, and it's got kind of a quicker pace. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. I think. Like, every scene in this movie that is, like, her husband and her dad talking or her husband and her dad talking to her therapist, like, those scenes, I just, I they need to end as soon as possible. Uh, whereas, Don't Torture a Duckling, I'm kind of, I find the central mystery of who is killing people and why way more interesting. And I, I feel like Don't Torture a Duckling for me, and I haven't seen The Psychic or One on Top of the Other, but I feel like Don't Torture a Duckling for me is, like, the Fulci uh, giallo. Well... The other thing there is that Don't Judge Duckling is one of the only rural. Oh, God, it looks so yeah. good. That, uh, that, this, it's gorgeous, yeah. The, <laughs> there was a whole thing. I just found this out, like, maybe last year. Uh, the German producers referred to Dario Argento's brand as Jet Set Giallo. Yeah. Um, and that became the thing. And that's what you're talking about with these horribly ugly sets. They would cram as much shit as they could <laughs> to make it look classy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, when uh, real Italians didn't live in houses like that, oh, it was they just didn't. trying. It was it was just opulence. It was just opulence for the sake uh-huh. of opulence. And in this um, movie, thematically, it makes sense. It makes sense because they're yeah because and, they're, and it, but, they're yeah there's because there's, there's, there's the contrast between them and their neighbor. Yeah, and yeah, so these sure. ugly backgrounds are sort of like the the like so bad it's good thing I look for in a lot of these movies is when they're just so hideous <laughs> and you can't believe they have this much wicker fucking furniture <laughs> in one house. <laughs> um, uh, before we move on though, I, yeah. I I do I do want to talk about your reaction to the dog scene because I could not believe what I was seeing. Carlo Rimbaldi. Yeah, the dog scene. The the dog scene's interesting because it's the goriest, nastiest thing in the movie. But it's yeah. not. It's not related to me, and it's not even clear if it's happening or if she's hallucinating. And also, exactly. there yeah. all of her other hallucinations, like the uh, like in her one of the key plot elements is that she believes that two of the hippies saw her commit a murder, but they she mm-hmm. doesn't realize they were too stoned, and that is represented <laughs> in one of her nightmares as the first appearance, I believe. I I did not see uh, any of Fulci's work from before this, but the first appearance of the white-eyed eyes, uh, yeah, 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 uh, for sure. which of course later becomes extremely prominent in the Beyond. Um, all of her hallucinations are specifically paralleling either her actual anxieties in terms of like uh, she, you know, she she she's dealing with sexual repression, so that hallway full of naked people uh, sort of cavorting is a logical sort of nightmare image of that. Right. Or like her home for some reason has a hundred Francis Bacon paintings in it. So, uh, mm-hmm. and Francis Bacon, uh, had a series called the dead popes or the dead bishops. I forget, uh, which, and those paintings are on the walls of her home. And in one of nightmare sequences, she sees her family as those, uh, figures mm-hmm. Um, even the, uh, the goose with the triangle, uh, is a reference to a Salvador Dali painting that is in her home. So it's all, it's one of it's these things where it's like, you see where the nightmarish images, as surreal as they are, and as fantastic as they are, you see their, where they originate from. They're not totally arbitrary. The dogs are totally arbitrary. It is. There's no Chekhov's no. dog. No, it is something <laughs> that in, it is just, and, but this actually gets to something that. Fulci 
was extraordinary at. And the reason he is one of the greats is because he was a master of finding an image that is evocative and strange and upsetting and viscerally intense in a way that's hard to put into words. And he's clearly a guy who just had a lot of fucking baggage and a lot of shit. You don't like logically think like, (laughs) how do I scare people? I know she'll open a door and there are these vivisected dogs who are still alive and barking and panting. And you see blood pouring out of their organs. Like that is clearly like, Oh God, you got some issues, dude. You have some, like you seen some things in your mind's eye and these movies are a way to get them out. And of course, as you get into his more directly horror films, uh, into into uh, City of the Living Dead and The Beyond and House by the Cemetery and films like that, you get more and more of this. Um, and it is the thing that he does that is so spectacular that really, I think it's the reason why Fulci isn't more influential. It's just because how do you imitate that? Like, how do you do like that? John, yeah, no kidding. John Carpenter, you can say, okay, we're going to do a long steady cam shot that's a POV sequence. Or, okay, we have the shadows, we have the sort of the recurring image in the John Carpenter movie of the silhouetted shadow figures um, outside sort of staring at the people who are inside, whether that's an, it's an assault in Precinct 13 and Prince of Darkness and all that thing. Like, there are little touchstones that someone can pick up in a John Carpenter movie. I don't know. If I sat out to make a Lucio Sfulci-style movie, that would first require me to come up with, like, 13 amazing, terrible nightmare images that no one's ever thought of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, like, like uh, his... his uh uh, what's the word uh, I'm looking for? Uh, period drama, Beatrice uh, Cenci, uh, which I can't remember what it was called here in America. It does have a scene of murder that involves sticking a spike into someone's eye. So that's his first spike in the eye thing. Ah. But there's none of those. It, it's a murder scene. It's not a scary scene. Uh, and his Westerns will have m- murder scenes. And so, I, yeah, I think the dogs are are the beginning point for shit like uh, people barfing their entire intestinal tracts up in City of the Living Dead. Oh, which, God. Which is the absolute <laughs> most deeply disturbing thing I got in a, any of these movies. I got a text from oh. Jim while he was watching City of the Living Dead where he's like, why is this happening? Oh, God, I have a fear of being buried alive, and now this? Oh. Yeah. Dude, that movie, I think that we talked about this because you and I did a, 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 a podcast, yeah. a Tracts of the Damned, City of the Living Dead, that movie, I had a huge phobia of vomiting, and watching the Gates Gates of Hell VHS tape, I found it for sale. Watching it over and over over the years actually sort of cured me of my fear of vomiting. So maybe I should just watch that scene from the Beyond to cure me of my spider horrible. my spider phobia. And watch the last <laughs> yeah, the last maybe. sequence from Creepshow over and over again. Oh yeah, God. That one's more intense. I th- well, no, just the one scene from The Believers. The only scene worthwhile in the entirety of the movie Believers. Of course, the one scene I remember from that movie. Yeah, no, the rest of the movie's not worth it, but just find that scene on, on YouTube. We, we, we should or, say, we didn't properly, uh, or I interrupted Jim before he could properly introduce yeah. the, the premise. At some point, she is arrested for the murder, and she is in custody in some sort of asylum. Um, I It's not really clear, but she has some sort of mental illness. That's why she's seeing a shrink in the first place. So rather mm-hmm. than in being in uh, a prison, she is in this mental asylum. And then someone is coming to kill her, um, and she's fleeing from them. And she opens a door, and she sees four vivisected dogs who are, like, whimpering and whimpering. barking. Yeah. And it's 
and you see like just blood pouring out of their guts and it was and it is so convincing and it's by it's an effect by Carlo Rimbaldi who would go on to make ET so hold those two mm-hmm. ideas in your head wow. <laughs> uh, um, the most lovable special effect and also the most upsetting special effect uh, they had to go to court to prove that they yes. didn't kill dogs yep it was convincing enough that the that Fulci and the producers had to get uh, Rambaldi's effects and take them into court to prove that they hadn't, which is really saying something because they kill a lot of animals in those cannibal movies that would come out in the next decade. <laughs> People must have either changed their opinions or those dogs were just so visceral that they had to to do something about it. I don't know. Yeah, well, we've we've. It's funny because like I, I've you know I obviously watched all three of the uh, the Gates of Hell trilogy and. Um, I think a lot of the scene, a lot of specific scenes, sort of bleed together in my head to where I'm like, when, when, when did this specific thing happen yeah. in this movie and that movie? But mm-hmm. I think we're going to talk about um, a, a movie that I think Patrick, you've loved for quite a while now. I, I want to, I want to know if you, do, you've seen this on the big screen, I imagine, which is the Beyond, of course. The first, and I haven't yet. The first, Jim, can I, can I say one more thing about? Uh, I'm sorry, no, I should have said do. this earlier. Um, the one other thing I wanted to say about Lizard and Woman's Skin is that it, I think, is the first movie to introduce um, psychologists as pseudo villains, and it, there's, mm. or or at least people who don't know what they're talking about, because there's uh, a psychologist or psychiatrist in this that isn't really helping. Uh, there's a character in City of the Living Dead who isn't really helping and is 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 a hero, but also kind of sort of sort of emotionally abusive, and that builds up to Cat cat in the brain where the villain of the piece is a psych- psychiatrist or psychologist i can't remember who is tricking fulci into thinking he's committing murders fulci the actual the person lucio fulci hmm. maybe so skeptical I think that, of psychology too yeah and and i think that was something in dario Argento and sergio martino movies but i think that fulci as as one of the you know anti-catholic anti-authoritative mm-hmm. Uh, I think he was also anti-psychology uh, uh, from the standpoint of being uh, uh, analyzed. I think he was anti-analyst, <laughs> I think he was, which, which says a lot about who he is. So that was my final thought on Lizard. I, I, think, I, think that, I think that might also come from his love of film noir. I know one of his favorite films mm-hmm. of all time is, is uh, Ed, Edgar G. Ulmer's Detour. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. And he is... and. And I feel like film noir, there are a lot of shady psychiatrists because film noir, they started to play with interiority and they started to play with Freudian concepts in these Hollywood movies. And it was very, and a lot of them were very scared of that sort of thing. So they would have these evil psychiatrists. I think even like, this is sort of half film noir, but like Cat People, People, the Val Luton movie also has sort of an Mm -hmm. evil psychiatrist who is twisting the uh, vulnerable, psychologically vulnerable female lead for his own ends. Um, Dress to Kill is another. Oh yeah. sure, yeah, but they, yeah, and then and then you get into all the, those Hitchcock ones, mm-hmm. yeah, post Hitchcock. Um, I want to talk about the Beyond, but I'm I'm gonna I have to run and use the restroom real quick.
so the beyond for me is a it was a movie that existed on this massive screen and it exists on its own i this is my favorite horror film of all time is carnival of souls uh just in terms of the film the horror film that is closest to my heart um but i think this might be the best horror film of all time <laughs> like i kind of <laughs> think that there is nothing that touches this which is weird because he made two other movies and People who listen to Directors Club know how much I hate the sort of way that fans will arbitrarily lump films into trilogies um, mm-hmm. that aren't related, except for like vaguely thematically. When it's like, well, actually, John Carpenter made was doing these themes all over the place. You just happened to pick three random ones and called it his Apocalypse trilogy. It's nonsense. Um, but like uh, City of Living Dead, The Beyond, and House by the Cemetery do absolutely exist outside of the rest of Lucio Fulci's filmography. As, as three works that were him working towards a certain uh, aesthetic style and a certain sort of tactic in terms of how he tackles narrative, in terms of how he structures his movie, how he shoots his movies, how they feel, um, it is something he was building to. And we talked a little bit about it in terms of the camera work, uh, the sort of uh, beguiling uh, camera work of Lizard and a Woman's Skin, and that continues in a lot of his movies. He'll do these sort of long shots, uh, especially it's especially noticeable in his non-horror movies because horror movies already exist in the realm of just crazy shit happening all the time. So when a shark fights a zombie, you're sort of like, yes, I understand. I'm watching a horror movie. But then when you watch like Contraband and it's it's more or less a pretty straightforward mob revenge movie, but it still just looks insane. <laughs> um, yeah. It's like really noticeable that like, uh, oh yeah, Fulci had a specific visual idea that was important to him, um, and and I, I, I do need to say that 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 cinematographer Sergio uh, Salvetti was working with him at this point, uh, and was not working with him on Lizard in a Woman's Skin, and all of those movies that have that look, except for City of Living Dead, I think, uh, have. Stilvetti and and Fulci working in tandem mm. perfectly. Yes, and it's something that he was never able to do again without. Once the two of them stopped making movies together, I mean, we have a. I, I've I've said this before, and I'll say it again. We have a show called Directors Club. I'm not an auteurist. Movies are massively collaborative works. Yeah. Um, and there is no one person who is responsible, uh, for a movie. Um, and his the Fulci has had many different collaborators. He had, you know, he had actors that he worked with again and again. He had screenwriters he worked with again and again. Um, so yeah, I didn't, I didn't know that about the cinematographer, but it makes total sense to me. Um, well, I think, and I think the value and Salvetti's movies always look good. Am I pronouncing that right? Uh, Salvetti's movies always look good. He did a lot of full moon movies that look good, but he and Fulci, I think were, were, he got what Fulci wanted. I think so. I think it still was really Fulci being Fulci. Yeah, I, I'm not not saying he's the auteur, but I think that having a cinematographer who understood what he was going for really helped. Oh yeah, I mean the director's still the director. This is Fulci is still mm-hmm. a singular person with a singular vision. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is two things that we've talked about previously that I think work in tandem to create the feeling that I get when watching City of the Living Dead, The Beyond, and House by the Cemetery, and then to a lesser extent, Zombie, The Black Cat, uh, The New York Ripper, um, Conquest. Uh, And that is that, A, he is purposefully making... He is purposefully making information hard uh, to discern to the viewer. Um, Sometimes he does that with sort of a soft-focus, hazy filming style, like... 
Uh, I think four of the apocalypse has this uh, sort of yeah. That's the first. Look. That's the first. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, sure. I think contraband has this look. There's a scene at like this sulfur pit that is like entirely fogged out, and you can't quite understand where they are or what's happening uh, in contraband. So it's not just that his camera will do very weird oblique things where you don't understand the geography of a room, but it's also that he works with fog, he works with lighting. He makes you he makes it actively difficult for you to parse what is happening. And that is aesthetically, but that is also structurally. That's also the way that his scenes bleed into each other. That's the way that there is an immediate logic between why we jump from one scene to the next, but if you go two or three scenes back, it's kind of like a dream where you're like, wait a second, how did we get here? Oh, exactly. Um, yeah. There is this porous nature to his work. And this, you know, this even, I feel this is especially true of something like, uh, um, of, uh, not lizard in a woman's skin. Uh, the other geo don't torture a duckling. I was getting the okay. animal names mixed up. I think don't torture a yeah. duckling has a very stream of consciousness editing, uh, tactic as well. Um, and, and, and part of it is that his characters in their scripts, like they don't act in logical ways. People do things and you're not exactly sure why they're doing them. Um, or two characters will enter a room and they'll have this like knowing look as if like there's some sort of thing going on between them, but you don't know what it is. And it's never really brought up again. This is especially true of the scene with Joe, the pl- uh, plumber and the maid in the beyond. They have this like long scene where they're staring at each other. And it's always like, wait, I've seen this movie seven times now. What the hell is their relationship? <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I might be wrong on this, uh, but I think that in real that the actor and a- actress were a married couple in reality. I think I read that as well. <laughs> Um, and that was like some sort of meta thing, but it, but it works in what you're saying. Yeah. So when all of this together combined, which again, I'm saying Fulci is not an accidental genius. Fulci is doing these things deliberately. Um, Fulci, the, what the, he has a certain tactic he is using the way he approaches material, especially he ramps up to this again. Uh, zombie is sort of the first movie that you really feel it. Um, and, but, like, it goes all the way to uh, Conquest and the New York Ripper and uh, even Manhattan Baby. Um, though it, it starts to get away from him uh, towards that part yeah, of Conquest, Yeah, Conquest looks like it's being shot through Vaseline or something. Con- Conquest is fucking... <laughs> I have to say, I saw Conquest when I was very high. I, yeah, <laughs> I, oh, perfect. I, wanted, I picked out one movie. I was like, I'm going to get really high before I watch one of these Fulci movies. And Conquest seemed it. And okay. I was in tears for parts of Conquest, but that was totally <laughs> on my end, not because it's a great <laughs> film. But, but I was just like watching it and I was like seeing it as this like epic journey. And I was remembering being in high school and all the emotions I had in high school. It was a weird experience. Conquest is dope, but also I, I am not an objective uh, viewer of that particular well, film. Shit, man. Yeah. I, I think people are always looking for new stoner movies okay so. well I, I think that's a pretty recent you should because you you will just vibe out with the music and the weird mm-hmm. foggy look of conquest and then all of a sudden you get a woman ripped in half long ways and you're like what am i watching uh <laughs> conquest is conquest is fucking dope i feel um, like i feel anyways. like that's, that's that's my response to pretty much every fulci movie is there's yeah, always yeah, a absolutely. moment where i'm like what am i watching what is this yeah, yeah. <laughs> um uh so the thing that all of this does combine is it is like an enzyme that breaks down the idea of narrative. It breaks down the idea of cause and effect. It breaks down the idea of mm-hmm. logic. And what that does is you watch these movies and you are not watching a story. 
you are not you can't follow it you have to surrender to it and I feel like this is why Fulci's kind of a harder director to recommend. Like, I can show anybody Deep Red or Suspiria, and even if they aren't into horror movies, they can see, like, wow, those are dazzling movies. Um, I, like, you really have to be able to surrender to Fulci uh, to watch something like The Beyond and really get everything out of it. And I feel like that's why, Jim, for you, you saw The Beyond way back when, and you were like... You know, it it did become a favorite. It didn't necessarily you'd strike you as a masterpiece. But then when you watch it, along with, like, six other Fulci movies, all of a sudden you're like, okay, your mind now is in Fulci mode, and you can understand it, and you can work it. Um, yes, and uh, it means- suddenly you're acclimated to yeah. the, to his vision. And I just love movies now that are, feel like true fever dreams. And yeah. this, is, this is probably one of the best ones ever. So all of this that breaks down a movie, when you don't have that through line of like, I'm invested in this character arc, I'm invested in where it's going to happen next, I'm invested in, you know, the stakes. Like when all of that gets broken down, what you have is moments. What you have is set pieces, episodes, and all of Fulci's movies feel extremely episodic, even mm-hmm. the more logical ones like uh, Four of the Apocalypse's Spaghetti Western that mm-hmm. changes tone and changes mood and idea like constantly – it is like full. It's kind of a it's kind of a goofy, uh, fun uh, adventure movie, and then it gets really it's like a road nasty. Movie. Yeah, it's a fun road yeah. movie with these like interesting characters that are all. It's a, it's like a Wizard of Oz situation where there are these all these weird misfits who kind of grow to like each other, and you're like kind of enjoying them, and then someone shows up, and it becomes fucking dark and mean and nasty and desperate, and it becomes sweaty and gross, and you're like, oh god, and then. There's a sequence where it's like a whole town gets together to help someone give birth. And it's like this weird, sweet, like down home, like yokel uh, comedy. Uh, well, it's- there's also uh, in that scene, there's a part where they, they hear the woman screaming and then they realize she's given birth. And we see it from outside and the camera pans out as the entire town is looking at the building, waiting to hear the baby cry. And. And then when they hear the baby cry, there's just this relief to everyone in the entire town that the baby wasn't born, stillborn. And, it, 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 and so it's not only funny, but it's actually moving. But it is. And that's the thing. Fulci can do that. He, like, yeah. That is in his Surprising power so. to to move you and to get you invested in that. Even a movie where like just before, like this was a totally different movie 10 minutes ago. Mm-hmm. Like literally there was a cannibal scene. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and now all of a sudden we're like watching this very touching almost Frank Capra kind of moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he can do that. And so like, even in a movie like for the apocalypse where it's not like broken logic, you understand how you get from a to B to C to D. Um, he, he makes a movie that are about moments, about set pieces, about single images a lot, especially with the later, like with this uh, stretch of horror movies, the images. And that gets to the other thing that we talked about with like the dogs hanging in lizard and woman's skin, which is that is his bread and butter. That is the thing he can do that no one else can do. So he is he basically worked his way into finding a method that uh, highlights his uh, strengths and sort of diminishes his weaknesses. Um, And that to me is why these three films are peak. Like these are Fulci, uh, fully blossoming. Uh, coming out of the cocoon, and he is the most beautiful and ugly butterfly you've ever seen in your life. Um, and that, and the Beyond to me, because the Beyond is, it has the most outlandish set pieces, both in terms of the most outlandish and in terms of the highest number of them. Um, 
and because it's very fast paced, this is a very short movie that covers a lot of ground. Sure um, does. And because I think it's the best looking movie. I think the sets. I think. Uh, um, I think the location shooting that fucking highway in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Um, oh. you, you you spend so much time in this hotel. And, like, you're in the hotel and you're outside and it's Louisiana. It looks cool because you have those, like, low-hanging trees and you just feel swampy and sweaty. And then you get into that basement and it's, like, totally pitch black and it just looks like they're in a sewer. And it's it it just feels like this abstract space. And then you cut from that to that highway where you just see the highway all the way to the vanishing point and there's no other cars on it. And there's no uh, – it's, it's in, like, the middle of the ocean or the river or something. So there's no – buildings nearby there's no signs that are passing it is just this sort of uh otherworldly highway it feels like a highway from the beyond from you know mm-hmm. um from the like real the world way- it's the real world going into this sort yeah. of nightmare world and so like to me the beyond is the ultimate fulci movie because it is the period of his career where he found out how to best do the thing that he that only he can do and it also is the purest expression of that. And I think there's definitely arguments to be made for City of Living Dead being the best. I think House by the Cemetery is really, really cool and really impressive and amazing in a way that those two movies can't touch. Like, you can make an argument for any three of these, but for me, The Beyond is at the top. Um, I agree. And I... And it's... <laughs> and it's just... And, like, I could just go through and list moments from it, but, like, it's... It's just an absolutely astonishing movie from start to finish. I uh, I have a quote here from him, and I believe I got this from Spaghetti Nightmares, which is just a sort of collection of interviews with uh, various Italian filmmakers. And in, in regards to The Beyond, he said, My idea was to make an absolute film with all the horrors of the world. It is a plotless film, a house, people, a dead man coming from the beyond. There is no logic to it just a succession of images we tried in italy to make films based on pure themes without plot uh the beyond like dario Argento's inferno refuses conventional and traditional structures <clears throat> so he was acutely aware of what he was doing and i actually uh i don't usually become a a defensive dork but the ebert review actually offended me <laughs> because it just it just shits on the whole idea of it not having a plot and that it's it's stupid and that why would you watch this? And I remember reading it. He was very dismissive of genre The entirety of, in a lot of it. Cases. it. He didn't want to even try to communicate with it on its level. And, and Fulci really was an intellectual, probably even more so than Dario Argento. I think Dario Argento was well-read, but I don't think he was like, like a... He, I think Fulci had a doctorate. I don't remember in what, but he was Dr. Lucio Fulci on some of the things. Like, he was a very smart guy who was doing very specific things. He wasn't just enacting uh, grudges and, and putting gross shit on screen. I mean, later in his career, he did start to just give people... But, what- like, the intellectual is balanced by that visceral thing as well. Like, he mm-hmm. also was mm-hmm. doing that. Like, I'm not going to say that, like, when someone, you know, I'm not going to say that you watch Zombie and the eye being impaled by the splinter is like, ah, oh, that's a metaphor. Like, no, he also, in addition to being a very smart intellectual, he also had that sort of anger and that well, <laughs> that weird fury and that, and the, and that sort of twisted imagination con- he respected the grotesque the, the sure. context here is that zombie which was was designed as a ripoff of dawn of the dead which was called mm-hmm. zombie in italy so it was released as zombie 2 um and it was a surprise hit 
it really has very little in common with Dawn of the Dead. It's it's all Caribbean, and the zombies look completely different, and it's much more focused on the gore as spectacle than Dawn of the Dead is, and it's not funny uh, at all. Right. Um, but it was a surprise hit, and basically Fulci was told, make more of these. So, Sealy Living Dead, Black Cat, The Beyond, and House by the Cemetery were all him given freedom. He says, okay, make more of these. Well, I'm going to actually... I'm going to bring some of myself to this. I don't think there's a lot of him, other than his obsession with eyes, obviously, but I don't think there's a lot of him in Zombie 2. I think it's a really fun movie, and he does a great job giving the audience what they want. But I don't think, I think that with City of the Living, De- of the Living Dead, he's, he is bringing, and this sounds really pretentious of me, but I think he's bringing an intellectualism to it. He, it it might, might be crude, and it might not appeal to you, but it is... A uh, thought process yeah. behind it. He he he. Uh, I'm trying to remember the uh, Antonin uh, Atuar Atuad or Atwood. Uh, it, it was a uh, it was this thing he called it Atwoodian or Absolute Cinema. Uh, and there was this whole thing with uh, uh, the Theater of the Cruel, I guess is what it was called. And we talked about this a little on the City Living Dead thing. Uh, he was interested in in the 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 cruelty of, of the the ickiness on its own levels and unlike argento who was interested in in how visceral can this knife going into this person be or um that's another thing brian de palma is really about the visceral reaction of violence fulci's movies um are about decay and the mm-hmm. Hope, hopelessness. Hope, yeah, and so the gore in his movies uh, is often people make fun of it because to be killed by a zombie, you have to stand still and let the zombie rip you apart. Um, but the whole point is that that it's the breaking down of the body that's the part he respects and he wants to talk mm-hmm. about. And so you say that there isn't any uh, political meaning behind the the splinter in the eye, but in in uh, City of Living Dead. He he was trying to bring political meaning to the drill in the head scene. He saw that. I think you know what I I totally concede that. I think you are correct. I was speaking in terms of he's not necessarily an intellectual where everything he's doing is a metaphor right. for like he is not a Godardian no. type or whatever. But you are absolutely right in that it is an intellectual pursuit to examine cruelty and to examine hopelessness uh, in in the ways that he does and to examine the way like. You know, Cronenberg is another director you would think of as intellectual and is who is known for his body mm-hmm. horror and the way he disrupts bodies. But the way Fulci disrupts bodies, though his works aren't as clinical, uh, is equally interested in recontextualizing the way you even think of a human being. Right. And and I ha- I have a note in my uh, in my notes here saying, uh, yes, Cronenberg is kind of known for his body horror. <laughs> <laughs> but but let's look at Fulci for a second here cuz that exactly what you said Patrick cuz I I I feel that like the the festering the rotting flesh just like it's so visceral it's so intense and so grotesque that you know I I always look for well you know I'm so jaded and I'm you know I've seen it right. all and then Fulci comes along, and I'm like, "Oh my God, what am I watching?" It's, and this is like, it's so not even visceral. the goriest examples of these movies, but they're the ones that stay with you because of yeah. what's put into them and what they represent. I think. 
Oh, for I, sure. I, I do. I do also want to say that, like, there is part of me that is still fifteen yeah. and still. I just get giddy because I'm just like this is so gnarly. Like there, I'm, I can't, I can't claim that. Like part of the reason I connect to the Beyond, part of the reason why I have a Lucio Fulci tattoo, I have the sign of Iban uh, from uh, the Beyond, which is sort of this uh, omen of doom or the omen of the apocalypse or whatever. It's on your uh, forehead. It's kind of unclear. Right? <laughs> it's kind of unclear uh, on my wrist, the same place that Lucio Fulci's daughter got hers, which is where the symbol came from originally. Like the reason I have this tattoo is because I have depression and I am living through a pandemic and I am I am hopeless and I connect emotionally to these movies. Uh, they're definitely, like, when I look at the beyond, um, it speaks to me and my worldview uh, in, a, in a very personal way. Um, Especially the ending. Also, the ending really moved me. But, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But also, like... Oh, dude, she gets her fucking eye like gouged out, and you and and her throat's torn out, and 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 that acid is going in slow motion, and her face is bubbling. That's sick. That's awesome. Nope. Like, there's that's there too. And so uh, I'm the one who likes City Living Dead a little bit more. I think that it it is yeah. the less interesting movie, but it's the one I saw the most and the earliest, and it has those two scenes that really get to me. Um, and um, I think the doom, the sense of doom in City of Living Dead is better, but the sense of hopelessness in this, uh, in the beyond, uh, is something that, that Fulci isn't given a lot of credit for, is that he, like I said, he can do moving, but really tragedy is what he's better at. So um, mm-hmm. Don't Touch Her Duckling has a huge sense, like, a, like a, a very intense sense of tragedy to it. And the end of the beyond feels less like a shock-like like scariness and more of just this tragedy, this really sad um, uh, denouement to the to the the thing that you, you you're thinking that you're probably thinking in the back of your head if you've seen enough of these movies, these characters aren't going to live, but they don't just die; they're trapped. And the same thing happens in House uh, House by a Cemetery. Uh, the the characters who survive are basically trapped in in this sort of netherworld is the implication, and th- that really sticks with you more than. Uh, well, I'm trying to think of an Argento example. Um, I quite like uh, Suspiria; it's one of my all-time favorite movies. But a girl getting killed by falling into razor wire doesn't stick with me emotionally. It's it sticks right. with me viscerally. Yeah. And I think that also ties back into the way that his narratives work, which is the story does not emanate from the main characters. There is nothing that any of them do at any point in the beyond that helps their situation in any way. They are, that sense of tragedy uh, just in, uh, extends to just the fact that they are not agents of, destin- of their own destiny in this mm-hmm. film. Um, they have no say over what happens. He falls from a ladder and he has to watch as tarantulas come out of the walls and eat his tongue and lips and her eyeballs and not just do that, but like you hear the soundtrack, there's like laughter. Yeah. <laughs> there is like this weird, like cruel laughter. And it's like, is this the evil forces laughing? Is this the spiders themselves laughing? Um, and e- even the fact that some of the spiders look super phony wind up toys, like even that kind of adds to the mockery of it and makes it feel even worse because not only is he getting destroyed by all these tarantulas, like he's not even getting destroyed by uh, particularly vicious looking tarantulas. Mm-hmm. They just kind of go about their way. And even his zombies, they're like the tarantulas too. His zombies don't open their eyes. Um, like when you look at a George Romero movie, his zombies are 
things that have been reduced to some sort of essence. And there's a tragedy to the Romero zombie, of course, too. Um, and then you have, you have like, the running zombie who are like scary animals. Right. Um, that is, yeah, it's, an, it's sort of an expression of sort of out of control rage and, and rabies and rabies image, rabies imagery and stuff like that. But like the, the Romero zombie has some sort of dignity because the sadness comes from the fact that they are so lost. Um, you get the idea that, and and they don't. Uh, you get the idea that like Fulci zombies don't really care if they kill these people mm-hmm. or not. They're just sort of like, I guess I'll tear you apart. I guess I'll grab your head and impale your eyeball on a splinter. I like they're so listless. It is. It it's sort of again. It just makes it even more mocking the fact that no one can survive this uh, because you're not even being killed by by things that are intent on killing you. Um, yeah, it's just the cruelty of. Of, of of life it's like there's just this the triumph of this movie too is like there's an erasure of causality like the yeah there's the the, the, the random events and circumstances are beyond their control and they have, there's nothing they can do and it's just like there's an inevitability to everything including the ending it's like she even asks like wait a minute how did we get here yeah <laughs> you know and it's and it's like you're asking probably the same question but at the same time, it does feel like, well, th- there's no other place to go. This is where, this is, you can feel exactly what this movie is trying to convey at that moment and why it ends that way and why it's so powerful and, and moving in ways that few horror films can achieve. And it's like you're building up to, yes, you have those shock moments and certainly seeing, like, I, I still don't know why Dickie suddenly turns <laughs> on, it's because on Emily. It's because the dog in Suspiria turns. That's one of the most direct ripoffs, actually. Yeah. Uh, There's the scene okay. in Suspiria with a dog. It's the same kind of... Yeah, another yeah, yeah, scene yeah, yeah totally. Yeah, unfortunately, that I think that's one of the, f- the reasons why I always group uh, uh, the Beyond a little bit below um, City of the Living Dead is I think he was trying a little too hard to chase Argento. I think he made something different. I'm just saying, like, we're talking about the one and two best movies here. Uh, yeah, but yeah, I do yeah. think that there's part of him chasing Argento a little bit that, that didn't really help. But I think Dickie attacking is almost scarier than uh, yeah. than the witches making the uh, the pianist's dog attack him. Because uh, you, you see Dickie throughout the movie, and he's a nice guy, whereas they've already planted the idea that that this dog, that the pianist's dog, uh, is somehow being corrupted. Uh, throughout the movie, it's it's much more sudden. It it always feels like he was trying to one up Argento with his own gag, to me. Um, the other the other thing about this is oh, where was I going? I had an idea. I lost it. Come back around. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll I was going to say that the the thing that makes the Beyond the ultimate, even if it's not your favorite, that it makes it the ultimate of all these, uh, is I think the way things dissolve and like how how obsessed it is Ooh, with, yeah. with the way lie is dissolving people, with the way mm-hmm. decay is dissolving the walls in the basement, uh, with the way that acid is just sitting around and falls on some lady's face. And dissolves her, and then the the frothy blood is turns into the blob. Yeah, is a scary of a part of it. It's like, yeah, and it, it, the, I think that the Beyond represents these ideas better than any other Fulci movie. The sort of the pure film he was going for, the, that aesthetic, and the idea that he's more interested in uh, gore as uh, breaking down than gore as yeah. injury. There is a specific point of view 
to Fulci gore. There is a specific philosophy behind it. There are tons of super gory movies where it's like, and then he gets a chainsaw and he cuts two guys in half and they, they, they fall in half, split in half, and their guts fall out and, da, da, and blood sprays everywhere. Like, Dead Alive is technically a gorier yeah. movie than oh, yeah. uh, The Beyond, but there is a specific philosophy to Fulci's understanding of the human body as this, like, bag of... Like, Guts. his... Well, number one, the anatomy, the anatomy makes no sense at all. It's kind of like people are kind of like walking balloons where uh, as soon as they're punctured, like blood comes out of them as if they don't have musculature and bones and everything like that. Like they were just full of blood to begin with, like the sound effects specifically. And this is, I think, where the post sync sound. Um, whereas if you're trying to watch a more narrative movie that where you're getting invested in the characters, uh, I, I personally, at least, the, the post-sync sound makes it very difficult for me. Mm-hmm. But this is where the post-sync sound, uh, being alienated from what's happening, is part of the overall desired effect. So it, it works in its favor. Um, the the sound of the blood coming out, it isn't... It is just like the sound of someone dumping a quart of liquid onto pavement. Mm-hmm. It is the loudest splattering sounds um, and it'll, and he'll like take one shot where someone is melting, uh, and then he'll and it'll slowly dissolve that shot into another, and he'll just watch you break down. Even in his bad movies, even in something like uh, is it Touch of Death is the serial mm-hmm. killer movie. Um, even in Touch of Death, that opening um, where the man is he is eating a steak that you see him cu- you see him grilling up this steak, um, and he is sitting in front of his TV, eating a steak that is super rare and kind of gross looking. Um, And then you see down in the camera sort of follows down into his basement and you see this dead woman on this operating table with the, this with his steak is cut out of her side. There's just like this sort of jigsaw puzzle piece. And you realize that he's eating her. Um, And then he goes downstairs with a chainsaw and just cuts off all her limbs. And then he sticks her limbs in a grinder um, and grinds them up into like ground beef, and then he takes that ground beef and he just sort of chucks it into a pig sty, and all of his pigs just start eating it. Like the way that he just breaks bodies down more and more and more, and the way that it it would be probably for some it would be grosser if it was more realistic mm-hmm. because they'd be more convinced that the thing they're seeing is actually happening. Right. So like, I feel like some of the gore effects in like the walking dead or whatever, like K and B has an amazing sense of anatomy. Um, and that is something really important to K and B. And when you see, you know, certain effects in, uh, a day of the dead or something, which is probably the, for me, the best K and B movie, mm-hmm. uh, in terms of gore effects, like the, when the guy's head is being torn off and his vocal cords are stretching and, that pitch goes yeah. up. Like it's really important to them that they catch you off guard with how realistic, um, mm-hmm. yeah. even, even as over the top and fantastical as they are, they want you, they want to tie it down to something that you understand how the human body functions in real life. And Fulci is like, we are all shit. We are <laughs> all just fucking animated little mute puppets. And there is no dignity to any of us. And all of our bodies can be disrupted horribly at any time and just be broken down into component parts. And, like, this is a more upsetting scene uh, just because I think of the way it's filmed and the emotion and everything. But, like, to me, that is why I, I never finished. I, I, I got, like, 20 minutes into Irreversible and I was just like, I can't do this anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, that, you know, as 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 many gross out and 
you know, ultra and, and transgressive movies as I've seen, like Irre- irreversible was just too much for me. And like the thing that is so upsetting about that initial fire extinguisher sequence is it goes on so long and you see the head of the person whose their head is being bashed in by a fire extinguisher. You see it get less and less recognizable as human. Um, and that is the thing that Fulci does throughout all of his movies. Mm-hmm. His zombies, um, his zombies don't really look like people a lot of the time. Right. Uh, yeah, no, that's definitely uh, not true. In, in the in zombie or zombie two, whichever you want to call it, uh, they refer he referred to them as walking uh, flower pots, and I think it was a money issue. They couldn't afford to do real good, uh, realistic uh, appliances, so they just sort of like, well, these things crawled out of the ground. Uh, they're also the thing with zombie that I think is funny is they're supposed to be conquistadors, so they're like hundreds of years old. They would not have any structure left, but they're supposed to have crawled out of the ground, so they're all muddy, and so they look like walking mud. But then you break the mud, and there's blood inside of it. It's yeah, there's something really upsetting about that. I had to double check just now. Yeah, he did go to medical school for a while um, and study. Okay, that makes complete sense because I was going to say. Has he ex- like was he experiencing like some deterioration in his health? Well, I mean, no, he was. I know you mentioned his daughter and everything. Yeah, too. His daughter and him, and so he. But maybe he already thought of like he had the depression, obviously, from his wife. Yeah, and but uh, and his sickness. But I also think that maybe going to medical school gave him a sort of perspective. I think that you have to sort of think of the human body as just stuff. If you're going to go to medical school, especially you have to take those anatomy classes. I had a friend take an anatomy class. He wasn't even medical. Uh, he wasn't even trying to be uh, – it wasn't his his major, but he thought it would get him over his phobias, and instead he just passed out every time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh. I mean, just like um, the, just the, the visuals <laughs> of melting faces and popping eyeballs and picking out your guts, it's like – yeah, on one hand, it does tap into that that fifteen year old that just wants to see the grossest, craziest shit possible. But the, at the same time, I, I don't know if it's just because I become more sensitive with age and worrying about health and deterioration. It's it's it has a more intense visceral effect that lingers with you. And I also don't think it's just it's it's not gratuitous because no, it can't be. Happen- it can't be gratuitous. You know. It's the whole point. It's it's not gratuitous because right. it is the point of the film. <laughs> Right. And in fact, if you look at films that he made like right at the end of this period, if you look at Manhattan Baby, that is a movie oh, yeah. that doesn't have strong gore effects. That is a movie that uh, is very much trying to be a little more supernatural, a little classier, a little bigger, mm-hmm. um, more ambitious. It was a movie that it had its budget slashed right before they went to filming. So there's all these scenes where you're supposed to see spectacular effects and instead you see really lousy effects. Yeah. But, like, he was not imagining that as this sort of gory movie, um, and it just doesn't have the same menace. The thing about watching a Fulci movie is because the beyond opens with the guy being crucified and ripped with chains, and not it's like he gets Ugh. whipped with a chain and his skin rips, but his skin rips and then the camera slowly zooms in on mm-hmm. it. There's a certain rhythm to the way that the wounds are focused on that is, like, really upsetting and catches you off guard. Um it's not just like a crash zoom. It's not like the most overblown version. He approaches them from a slightly strange angle that always catches you off guard and makes it worse. You understand, okay, this is a guy who's going to do anything at any time. Anything is possible right now. And so I'm not going to say that like Fulci movies are particularly scary. Um, I mean, you know, I'm a, I'm a horror fan, so I don't necessarily watch a lot of horror movies. To be scared. Looking always yeah. to be scared. Uh, though I do enjoy filmmakers who are able to do that, you know. 
Um, but like there is an apprehension, there is an anxiety, yeah. there is a, and that adds to the malicious sense of the whole world, which is just like you're watching these characters and they're just having this little date at this jazz club in New Orleans. They're having a drink and she's like, well, you know, I'm a real dilettante and I tried all these different professions and now I guess I'm going to run a hotel. And it's like, oh, her head could be caved in at any moment. <laughs> like there's no, like just the fact that the, that this cute moment is happening is not, no one is safe. Well, yeah. And, and I'm, I'm t- constantly unnerved. Yeah. And so like over the top gore is part of the overall Aesthetic. It doesn't work without it, and so and that makes it not gratuitous, like Abe said. It, I, th- yeah, I think and, the, uh, the, I think about the bat too in uh, House by the Cemetery. It's like, what? How? How could this be going on as long as it is? <laughs> but at the same time, it's it's it, it really affects you because maybe like you know he's lingering on that for a reason. I I think that the uh, the dead dog moment in uh, the Beyond is when the little girl gets her head blown up. Oh, because yeah. it comes out of nowhere. <laughs> There's no reason to believe that she's been infected and by the evil. it's pretty quick, too. And then, and then he just blows her head up, and it goes... And it was, like, on the posters when the Tarantino run happened. So, oh, I remember that. And I yeah. hadn't seen it. It was, it was one that was on video as Seven Doors to Death, and I was just never able to find it back in Arizona. I was able to find a lot of his movies that were available there, but so I, I didn't see it until then. And I just pictured that this was going to go on forever. Like, Fangoria Magazine had that as a cover. But it's this really quick shot where her head sort of jerks back and then throws all its innards out, and that's it. It's not like this long, yep. like, l- l- luxurious go-into-her-head moment. <laughs> no, it's a, it's, a, it's a masterpiece. I really feel that way now. And the other thing, the other thing about uh, the Beyond specifically, though I think this is also true of City of the Living Dead, um, and to a lesser extent, how, uh, House by the Cemetery, is the the way Fulci catches you off guard, he keeps changing his approach. He keeps changing tactic. It's not the same thing over and over again. It's not, we have a scene of two people talking, and then we have a scene of gruesome murder. And then we have seen, um, he changes environments. Like I said about, you go from the swamp, to you go to that basement, to you go to that highway, to you go to that really yep. weird, uh, pristine uh, morgue. Uh, where the guy has like the brain waves, there's always a new element being added. Just where you think you got a handle on it, he adds some new little twist to the point where there's this one sequence that I really have never figured out what the hell is happening. Where uh, the main character is in the hotel and she's with the blind woman, and then at a certain point the blind woman disappears or like it. She runs away and she realizes that the, that there was no foot footsteps. She's realizing mm-hmm. it's supposed to be that she realizes she was a ghost, but it but it like it doesn't like, it like breaks very strange way. The editing of uh-huh. it is so wild, um, and to a point where it's almost like it's almost like that moment in like Duke of Burgundy where the moths fill up the whole screen, mm-hmm. and it's like we are now stepping outside of the narrative and we are sort of breaking the fourth wall to like remind you that you're like watching a film with a technique that is not doesn't have any basis in representational reality it only has basis in cinematic uh uh aesthetic um it's such a weird moment and that whole, and again the beyond is a short movie so it's able to keep up that pace um i but I, I mean, like, City of the Living Dead has like super gore, but the grossest part of City of the Living Dead, well, I guess barfing up your entire <laughs> intestinal tract is yeah, might that's, be that's number pretty one. gross, dude. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Number two, though, is the blood dripping from the ceiling into the yeah, glass, the glass of, milk. of milk. Yep. 
Uh, I think you hit on something, though. Uh, City of the Living Dead and House by the Cemetery and Black Cat are all gothic movies. And I had seen those Mm -hmm. years before I saw The Beyond. And I think the thing that thrilled me the most about Beyond was those those, uh, uh, scenes in that weird morgue that's almost sci-fi. So I think you hit on something there that The Beyond uh, does cut... You know, it, you keep cutting between places. Whereas in City of Living Dead, you're always going to be in a shitty place at a certain point in that movie, and it's going to be the same mm-hmm. kind of shitty, foggy, gross place. Um, but but in the Beyond, you could be in a totally different place. You could be in a decaying basement one minute and a pristine hospital environment the next minute. So yeah, I definitely think you hit on something there that I hadn't thought of before. <laughs> Well, let's each go through one more title that we want to bring up. I know that's pretty difficult to do. Mm. Yeah, well, <laughs> in this filmography, 50, that's why I'm like fifty some movies. Yeah. Well, yeah. The other interesting thing about Fulci is he had a forty plus film career. Fifty six movies. Um, forty. He had like Good a forty, Lord. like a forty five year film career or something like that. Um, the movies that people talk about when they talk about Fulci pretty much exclusively exist in a twelve year span. Mm. Um, from Lizard in a Woman's Skin to, like, Manhattan Baby. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, his later films are on Blu-ray, and but they're not really well-regarded, and they're not widely discussed. And when you talk about sort of the legacy of Fulci, they're, they don't stand as tall as the work in this stretch of filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's, so, I've, I've heard that as well. But the, uh, the one I'm curious about, though, is House of Clocks, just based on the plot. Because I, I I like the idea of the it's almost like a tenant situation with time going backwards all of a sudden. Um, so I'm I'm curious. About I actually that just one. rewatched that one yesterday. Uh, House of Clocks and Sweet House of Horrors were part of a series um, oh, okay. that was uh, it was called uh, Houses of Doom basically, um, and it was supposed to be him, Lamberto Bava, and Umberto Lenzi. Uh, Bava dropped hmm. out, so him and Lenzi each did two movies and he apparently wrote his own Lindsay's were called house of witches and house of lost souls i haven't seen those um house of clocks is they're both pretty bad they're made for tv movies which Uh, obviously is is a problem um but house of clocks is better because that has that basic thing and and i think what they both would work as single 30 minute 20 to 30 minute episodes within a portmanteau like a amicus type thing and House of Clocks has a pretty strong central idea that there are these these old people that have some sort of weird occult thing behind them. That's uh, the these thieves come into their house and sort of inadvertently kill them, and then time uh, af- after time recycles back and they come back kind of as zombies to exact their revenge. It would have been a really good twenty minute movie, but instead it's a ninety minute movie, so it. Uh, doesn't quite work. Yeah, it sounds like it could be like a Tales from the exactly. or something. <laughs> uh, and it's a good idea for a TV movie, too. But, yeah. Um, I, I want to talk about the New York Okay, River. That's the one I wanted to talk about. Well, then we'll talk about it <laughs> Okay, you go, ahead, you go ahead, Jim. Well, I mean, uh, it's hard for me to pick just one title because, I mean, the ones I watched were all really interesting and interest in different ways. And this one just came out in 4K. And mm-hmm. I was thoroughly shocked by the violence uh you know, and I, again, I wouldn't say it's upper tier Fulci from the ones that I I watched, but it's 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 something that you'll never forget. It's it, it reminded me of like when the first time I saw Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer and just some of the some of the violence, some of the sequences here. 
are it's such a strange point of comparison. I understand where you're coming from, but they're such different movies. Oh, as well. for sure. It's yeah, just, no, I know. Yeah. I know. This one, this one goes way over the top, crazy, loony, weird stuff. Uh, especially with the fact that the uh, serial killer likes wants to talk like a duck. Um, <laughs> which is a which weird is, uh, internal uh, reference to "Don't torture a duckling." Yeah, uh, for no. Yeah, what, I loved your review. I loved your review, Patrick. Uh, very clever. Oh yeah, the alternate title of "Don't be tortured by a duckling." Yeah. Donald Excellent. Duck. Don't torture Donald Duck specifically. And yeah. it, they have a Donald Duck head. I don't know. I don't know how that ended up on Blu-ray. What, like, what yeah. did they have to go through with Disney to be able to use that? On anyway, uh, <laughs> I don't, norm- don't know. That. <laughs> New York. I don't normally insert clips from the films we cover, but I, I do think people should hear what this murderer sounds like over the phone. So, yeah. Thanks. However, you disappoint me, duck. <laughs> it's. I, I can explain it for you if you want. If you want me to. Okay. I. I. I I've, I'm here to learn. <clears throat> I just swallowed a bunch of spit as soon as I was about to start talking. <laughs> Uh, excuse awesome. me. So the New York Ripper really was a return to Giallo for him. But it was released at a point where G- nobody really cared about Giallo anymore. And so all the Giallo movies that were coming out were basically slasher movies. Um, so my point of view is the duck voice is is actually a satire. It's, it's a reference to Don't Torture a Duckling, but it's also a satire of the way in Dario Argento movies, he would disguise his killer's voice by making them always whisper. And then that way it could be a man or a woman and it would, you know, you can't tell someone's gender um, sure. or size or shape really by their whisper. So I think that the Donald Duck voice was, I, the way I see it, it was a, it was a satire of the whisper voice. It was like pushing it to a weird extreme. Uh, the whole movie is a satire pushing things yeah, to weird extremes. It's, it's the yeah. one movie that is uh, like, 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 as we were saying at the very beginning of this, Fulci might've been a misogynist. But this is the one movie of his that is a misogynistic movie. I don't. Oh yeah. I don't think any of his other movies. Like I guess Four of the Apocalypse has an implied rape scene, um, but it's not that you're. It's supposed to be a tragedy. Um, I can't think of any other. Uh, and The Devil's Honey has uh, is is really takes the woman's side and she's abusing the man. So there is a sort of a sort of misogyny in that. But the New York Ripper is the one that just. Did, is mostly just women being killed in really horrible, painful ways. Mm-hmm. I, I yeah. think there is, you could also, uh, you could point to the recurring image that it starts in Lizard in a Woman's Skin, um, but also pops up in House by the Cemetery and a very, very memorably here of uh, women's breasts being punctured and stabbed. Mm-hmm. Um, that happens in House by the Cemetery. That is that is the very first dream sequence the murder is depicted. It's her breast being cut open. Um, and in this, it is a razor blade slicing a nipple in half in excruciating close-up. Oh. Yeah. yeah, and then the eyeball. And like, I think at that point he was just trying to outdo his previous eyeball traumas. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a good... It, it, like, it's a good effect, but it doesn't... It, 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 it's the fact that the eye rolls back as it's being bisected... I think adds something uh, of a realism mm-hmm. to it, but that whole scene is the scene. That scene, the thing about that scene is that it's it's really there to to tell us that the the male protagonist is a piece of shit that he could have actually fixed this situation, and he refuses to uh, acknowledge that he's been seeing this prostitute and that the killer figures it out, and he probably could have if he would have just gotten his shit together. 
he might have been able to save her. Not to say that the killer is uh, teaching him a valuable lesson here, but I do think that movie really hates its uh, male protagonists. Yeah. I mean, I, when, I I, so, when yeah. you say this movie is misogynist, it, it, it's more that this movie, uh, if the act of watching this movie is the act of watching women being tormented and mistreated and abused and uh, murdered and violated like over and over and over right. and over again. Like the, it's, it's tongue in cheek. I don't think that absolves it no, but... of this thing. I don't think this is like, Oh, it's secretly, it's like, no, it's, it's just, <laughs> it's, but it's also not necessarily coming from a honest place. In fact, it feels like the, the point where Fulci was leaping off of the sort of fugue state he was in, when he made City of the Living Dead, The Beyond, and House by the Cemetery, where those films feel very idiosyncratic and personal, and they're, and he was channeling something very real inside of him, and they don't feel self-conscious in in, a, in any real way, um, uh, other than a few moments where they're ripped off from, you know, The Shining or from a Dario Argento movie or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, like, we're, uh, ha- New York Ripper is him sort of disengaging from that and going back into, like... Eh, let's let's just fuck around and um and he never did get back to that uh which is you know fine yeah, he made so many great movies a lot movies. of people considered yeah, totally. for a long time this was considered his last quote good movie um but at the same time it was so ch- this even even like fanzines were like he might have gone too far with this one i I, yeah. <laughs> I remember that being a thing like i have this this tiny little book by Chaz Ballin that that's more of a pamphlet than a book and he's just like it. Basically, the way he writes is like it's so rad. There's this barfing up blood, and there's guts on the floor. And when he gets to the York Ripper, he's like, I think he may have gone too far. Uh, it's a little <laughs> bit too much. <laughs> and uh, and so I think that there was there is a sense that this actually alienated some people, and it alienated me for a while. The first time I saw, I saw the cut version, it's interesting. The uncut version is all the nudity and stuff and the sex. The uh, version that was released on home video in America had all the gore, but didn't have the, uh, I don't know what else to call it, but the toe scene. Um, yeah. And it didn't, oh. and it didn't have the, uh, the scene where she's actually watching uh, the couple have sex on stage. Uh, so it lost a little bit of that. I think it's actually less shocking when you have the porn, the softcore porn elements, because it, makes it feel like it makes it feel like it's a comment on uh that that these it makes it feel like a Fulci movie because these perverse people are actually the good guys in these situations and the uh the killer is the um is again the uh guy with this moral failing uh that his his daughter is been injured and is never going to be as beautiful as these other women uh, so he's uh, yes. killing them, which uh, I didn't realize until I was watching this new documentary, uh, F is, uh, Fulci for Fake. Uh, I they, they put together on that in interviews that Fulci might have actually identified with that killer because his daughter had been oh. hurt. Oh. And, people were, and, and they actually ask her about it, and she sort of shrugs it off. But I had never thought about that. So he might have actually even been satirizing himself uh, to a certain degree. Hmm. 
We should mention he's well, he's in every single one of these movies we've talked about. That's true. He 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 did he he's not necessarily as full of himself as like I am the grand auteur the way that a Dario Argento is, but one thing he did take from Hitchcock is that he has his little cameos as like a cop or an authority he's figure of Almost some sort. always an authority figure who is very nonchalant about whatever's happening. Huh. Like <laughs> like just like, yeah, another one died. Uh I need you to get, or like in Zombie, he's like he's the he's the Perry White to uh, the Ian McCulloch's uh, Clark Kent. He's like you need to go and you need to find out what's happening on this island. There's crazy shit. I mean, I'm sure this is a big story. <clears throat> um, Was there one that you wanted to bring up, Gabe? Well, that you think, uh, I think that I would just generally like to say that that revisiting these, uh, especially since they started to come out on Blu-ray, they're you know like yeah. the ones, the good ones, they came out on Blu-ray like pretty quickly. Uh, took took *Legend of Skin* and *Tartar Duckling*, but uh, because I had to review them when they were re-releasing them uh, pretty recently within the last couple years, I I used to be one of those people who thought the New York Ripper was the end of it for him. That that it sort of like even if it was shocking and sort of maybe in, un, unforgivable that it was the last well-made one. But then I had to review Manhattan baby and I'm like, well, maybe I actually like this. And then for this podcast, I got the conquest Blu-ray and it was better than I remembered. And, uh, the devil's honey came out on Blu-ray recently. And that is almost like a basic instinct type movie. You're talking about yeah, a there's that, that one, that one has, has its defenders to where I'm probably going to check it out. Yeah. It's it. You're talking about your mom's erotic thrillers. This one fits as close <laughs> in with that. It's a lot like basic instinct. In fact, to the point where, uh, what year did it come out? It came out before basic instinct. So I guess it was probably trying to be, uh, Oh God, I don't remember the name of the William Hurt, uh, movie. Body, oh, heat. body heat. I think it was trying to sort of take off on body heat. Oh, body heat. Um, oh yeah. And and also Who directed Body Heat? Can we do an episode on <laughs> is it Lawrence Kasdan? Probably. Yeah. He's made a couple of good movies. I need to I need to drool about William Hurt's naked back and body heat. That's <laughs> why well, I, I do that I, I do that with altered states, personally. Altered states, yeah, fair well, enough. Yeah, talking well, talking about American things, I, I do think that a New York Ripper is oddly similar to uh, uh, Dressed to Kill. Uh, the the main the main the woman. They're mm. they're very similar characters, and I don't know if it lines up that he could have like what year did Dressed to Kill come out? Did it come out in ninety or eighty two or eighty one? I think so. Eighty. It came out in eighty. I think it's eighty two. It came out in eighty. I just oh. looked it up. So yeah, he was definitely this the, uh, parts of and 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 Dressed to Kill has the same sort of idea that this woman is sexually frustrated and the 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 movie i think in the case of dress to kill it always felt like the movie was kind of judging her for that and i feel like in the case of new york ripper the movie is pitying her for that and wants to be on her side and she just keeps stumbling into these bad situations hmm. uh i i might be just because i don't really like dress to kill very much personally uh i might just be trying to to prop up a Fulci movie but anyway so I watched those movies. I watched that. That ended up being pretty good. Enig- Enigma, you kind of liked. More I than you used to hate Enigma, and I rewatched it, and I think it was maybe the last one where he might have. Maybe he had a health comeback because I felt like he was putting some effort into it. It had a horrible script and no money, but there's these really cool model shots in it that I really like. Um, yeah, those shots are amazing, and there's some cool music, and it just it has some feeling to it. 
Uh, hmm. mm-hmm. But then Cat in the Brain might actually be where it falls apart because Cat in the Brain was a big. It was. Uh, it came out when he was. You know, 1990 is when his his uh, legend is growing, and the Fangoria and Gore Zone communities, like people that are probably 10 years older than me, are really. And and so this movie came out, and we couldn't get it here, and it was just this this thing where like. Fulci's big masterpiece where he plays himself and uh, it's actually really not good. It's one of his worst movies, I think. So it might be around there, but then voices from beyond is kind of good. Uh, are not most, I'm sorry, not voices from beyond. Uh, Door to silence. Demonia. Oh no, no. Yeah. Voices from beyond is okay. Demonia was better than I remembered it being. I just got that Blu-ray. I thought that one was terrible. That one definitely suffers from no money. Um, it looks a little like it's shot on video, even though it wasn't. Um, I think there is a lot of moments in Manhattan Baby that are great, great. really good. I think, yes, yeah, I would, I, I would agree. I think, I think, I think, if Manhattan Baby had the gore of the other movies, and you had that overall sort of uh, pessimism and menace uh, that comes along with that, I think that would be a movie that I really love. Um, but the thing is, yeah, without the gore, it just it it comes off as a little silly in points. But I love the. <laughs> I love the shot of you get to see an instant photo, like, like a, a sort of Polaroid picture, develop in real time. Uh-huh. Um, I think that's such an amazing moment. There's the scene where her hand burns onto the bed Ooh, sheet. And- yeah. Manhattan Baby just has some cool just sand, just doing sand things. Like, that's yeah. a movie that's yeah. good. Just good shots of sand. That's that's something special, mm-hmm. I think. <laughs> but you know, yeah. yeah. Ever since Woman in the Dunes, I've always had a thing for good sand. Uh, but his television films and his straight to video movies, Touch of Death, Demonia, Door to Silence, is particularly bad. But it's maybe not his fault. He was basically dying, and uh, he uh, it stars John Savage, who was a big enough star to be difficult to work with. Uh so it's really it's not as cut and dry as I once thought it was, and it makes me wonder if uh, if people the fact that Argento is still making movies today it feels very cut and dry where his movies start to get bad, but it makes me wonder if people who are teenagers now start watching Argento movies and he dies in a couple of years the dude's old he's probably going to die soon um, are they going to revisit what I think are terrible Argento movies and find value in them as I'm revisiting these Fulci movies that, that people 10 years, 10 to 20 years older than me thought was the end of it. And they couldn't even watch them anymore. I, I, I'm wondering if, 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 if it's time that makes the difference or if maybe Fulci did have more value later on that I just hadn't seen. Uh, so yeah, it's not as cut and dry as it used to be. So instead of talking about one movie, I'll just say that. Uh, I think that basically from, I think his Westerns are really good too. I don't really want to talk too much about them. But um, I discovered recently that he was a big horse rider, and the Bru- the the massacre time, which is also called Bru- the brute and the beast, has some really great horse stunts, uh, dry- riding shooting stunts, uh, and his first White Fang movie is pretty good, and and like we said, for the apocalypse is good, so I think people should watch those. But really, if you start, you can go back to these. Uh, and I would watch the good ones first because I think it makes you appreciate the not so good ones. Yeah, um, I, I I definitely agree. I I tried watching Enigma 
um, at a certain point before I was really acclimated to Fulci and I found it totally unwatchable. Yeah. And now I was, I was able to vibe with it and I was able to be like, well, all this kind of, this part kind of sucks, but I like, I like the overall mood of it and I like the snails. Yeah, the snails, it's like, oh, no. definitely him trying to figure out, like, I can outdo the spider scene. I'll use snails. Yeah, Literally yeah. the slowest the, creatures I, on Earth. <laughs> the bird the bird scene at the end of Manhattan Baby is totally just him doing tarantulas yeah. as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, down to the object disappearing after the guy dies. Yeah. Um, I want to say that the black cat has something that no other Lucio Fulci movie has, uh, other than maybe House by the Cemetery, which is it's eerie. Mm-hmm. There is a weird, quiet uh, kind of spookiness to it, which normally Fulci movies are just too uh, bomb—not bombastic necessarily—but they're just they're just too all over the place, and to really maintain that atmosphere. Um, uh, but like the guy, like with the old antique recording equipment, recording at the grave, and it's kind of foggy, and there's just a lot of really cool feelings, and that's another movie that. It doesn't have, like, amazing gore. Um, a lot of the cat attack scenes are kind of just like, well, they just kind of have a cat paw that's attached <laughs> to a red paintbrush, and the, and the cat paw is just sort of painting the fake blood onto the faces uh, <laughs> as it sort of reaches into frame. It's kind of goofy and silly. But, like, there's a scene where a woman dies uh, by being lit on fire that is, like, super... Not uh, graphic in terms of being uh, super gory, but it's just, like... It's just so extended, and she's just screaming for so long, and the fire looks so intense, and it's very believable. Mm-hmm. It's just like a really brutal moment. So it's that movie still has that kind of menace that the really, really good Fulci movies have. I like The Black Hat quite a bit, and I think that movie's underrated. I think that I'll movie. Check that one out. That movie also has Patrick McGee, and I feel like McGee and Fulci were speaking mm. of vibing. I feel like they were on, like, I feel like Fulci knew how to use Patrick McGee that he had probably seen. Uh, uh, Clockwork, Orange. Clockwork Orange as like I want this face over and over again <laughs> and I think it may I mean I actually think Fulci I, pe- people who he worked with over and over all liked him uh, David yeah. Warbeck liked him uh, Al Cliver's in a whole bunch of his movies I don't remember what his real name is uh, but he would always have arguments with people and then he would figure it out I think that uh, he brings out some really good performances from uh, Fabio Tisti who's usually okay yeah, uh, and Catriona McCall. Yeah, Catriona McCall is. Um, she has mostly nice things to say about him. She had a couple arguments with him, but um, I think he knows actors better than a lot of these. I think a lot of these Italian horror guys uh, didn't. They just would uh, use whoever's hot and not really know what to do with them. Uh, I think it, it makes a difference in a lot of them. And I think that that uh, the last one I'll say something about is Warriors in the Year Twenty. 72 or uh i think it's called new the new gladiators Gladiators. yeah uh that one's it's got fred williams and jared martin it's got like some like pretty big name uh uh american b-movie stars and they all seem to be working well with him and the funny thing about that movie is that uh a lot of fans have accused it uh the running man of ripping it off uh, even though The Running Man was based on a book that was written just before this movie. But they're basically the same idea, that it's like televised death sport. And it's 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 probably one of the best of the uh, not very good uh, Italian kind of... They did this whole bunch of Mad Max slash Escape from New York 
uh, ripoffs. And it might be one of the best ones because it, it, it has a sort of political uh, point of view and a sort of anti-commercialism. And, a, and, and it has really big ideas. Like, it's a real sci-fi movie, which uh, Fulci never really did another big sci-fi movie. Uh, and it just the only thing holding him back is the budget, obviously. But it's got, like, like computers that are that are coming to, uh, uh, but you know, computers that are, what, what do you call it? Uh, uh, the moment that, that all computers are self, self-actualized computers, which, you know, it's a pretty big idea for a, for a weird, uh, New York Ripper and network ripoff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, there's so much more to see. We could do a whole other episode on non-horror Fuji. So I I would be intri- into that, and uh, before we give our our top three picks, I gotta say there's so many ref like references and resources out there that uh, I, I think are worth checking out. Um, one of my new favorite podcasts, Screen Drafts, just did a uh, a draft on the top seven Fulci movies with Elric Kane and Rebecca McKendry. That's a lot of fun to listen to. Um, they mostly agree. And, uh, of course, Stephen Thrower is kind of the Fulci master. Yeah. And he, has, he has a great book. And he's always good on the, the special features on Blu-rays. It's always good to listen to him. He's just, he's got a good way of yeah. breaking things down without it seeming pretentious. Like, feels, it feels informative and educational. Right. And <laughs> Supporting Characters, of course, has a wonderful interview with him as well. And there's that documentary you mentioned, hopefully, that I'll see sooner than later, called Fulci for Fake. Yeah, which I enjoyed. Uh, having watched other Lucio Fulci movies, or documentaries, there's one that's just a series of interviews uh, called uh, Puar, uh, Lucio Fulci Remembered, that is just sort of a guy who took a bunch of interviews and he never really made a documentary out of them, but he sort of outsourced them, and they're, they show up in other special features. Um but you have to have like five hours of your of your day to be able to sit down <laughs> and watch all of them. But there is a lot of good resources. And and a Fulci for Fake, I just watched it for the first time last night. And it was interesting. Uh, uh, yeah, it took a more personal slant with the whole thing, which I appreciated. Yeah, I'm definitely curious about that. And I'll, I'll definitely pick up that that incredible Stephen Thrower book. If it's not out of print, and I, it, when I looked it up, it seemed like it was. There's a digital one now, I think. I think. Yes. All right, let's give our top three Fulci movies. Who's going well, first? I'm af- I, I'll go first. I'm afraid that I'm not going to throw anything uh, too surprising into the mix. My top three are number one, The Beyond, number two, City of the Living Dead, and number three, House by the Cemetery. They're just that's the <laughs> that's where that's where Fulci uh, perfected his form, and they're just they're all spectacular. Though uh, ancillary list. Uh, if you want to get high, just watch Conquest three times. <laughs> okay, I will. <laughs> okay, sounds good. Fun. Um, I, yeah. I, I I'm pretty boring. I, I say City of Living Dead, The Beyond, and Lizard in a Woman's Skin, but I could switch that with Don't Torture a Duckling. Uh, but I'll say that my my non horror list would be uh, one on top of the other or Perversion Story, uh, Four of the Apocalypse, and Contraband. All of which have horrifying elements, but I would not consider horror movies. Cool. I gotta check all those out. My top three, kind of predictable as well. Number one, The Beyond. Number two, A Lizard in a Woman's Skin. And number three, City of the Living Dead. Oh my lord. I don't want to watch 
more being buried alive scenes <laughs> ever again. And then on top of that, he's like throw the, throwing a pickaxe on the coffin, and I'm like, you're going to kill her, dude! What are you doing? And that that same gag repeats uh, with a little kid in House by the Cemetery yeah. with the kid in the basement. In the axe. Yep. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> oh, my lord. Yeah, and you gotta love Bob. But, uh, <laughs> Poor that's Bob. a very memorable kid. Oh, wow. <laughs> great job with the dubbing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, great. Well, that was a lot of fun, guys. Yeah. I, yeah. Like I said, he's become a new a new favorite of mine. I feel like every time... Well, I'm not as crazy about Argento, but I, I feel like when we... Especially with Bava and Fulci, uh, I'm developing a, a much stronger appreciation for their contributions to horror cinema in general. So it's, it's a, it's a great thrill. Thank you. Yeah. For, well, you're welcome thank <laughs> you for being here. Where else can we find you? Who Patrick or me? <laughs> Both of you. Uh, you can find Patrick at Treks of the damned, uh, available, mm-hmm. keep going available, uh, at all, where all your favorite, uh, podcasts are, uh, part of the non- now playing network. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, he he doesn't have Twitter. What have I been doing on Tracks of the Dam recently? Uh, he's been uh, reviewing uh, a whole lot of Friday the Thirteenth movies, um, and uh, I I talked about Friday the Thirteenth Five with him, and Freddy versus Jason with him, and I'm really hoping he uh, uh, that I'm really hoping that this that this uh, that this pandemic lasts long enough that he gets desperate and goes through all the Nightmare on Elm Street movies so I can talk about how great Nightmare on Elm Street 5 is. <laughs> and I can talk about how great Nightmare on Elm Street 4 is. Yeah, great. Sounds good. You already got two people, Patrick. Okay. All right. Well, I guess that's done. And you know where you can find Gabe Powers? You go to genregrinder.com. Um, he has an amazing podcast, the Genre Grinder podcast. He did an episode recently on found footage movies that was very good. Excellent. Um and also, that is website it should be your number one destination. If you are someone who listens to this and goes, you know, I haven't seen a lot of uh, genre films outside of the sort of Hollywood American canon, I would, I'm interested in stepping out and finding stuff that's interesting. Uh, guess what? Gabe has you covered. He does these uh, lists of these extremely comprehensive and very useful lists of genre films, not just from Italy, but from around the world and America. Um, divided up into subgenre, uh, as is Genre Grinder's way, um, <laughs> and what streaming platforms they're available on. And he updates those way more regularly than he reasonably should. So yeah, I finally they're had to, actually fa- I dialed back a little bit when I realized so much of that stuff doesn't go away. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, there, it's a great resource. There's a lot of streaming services out there that you're probably not aware of that are free. And if you don't mind watching a movie... Uh, with commercials for uh, prescription coupons uh, <laughs> every seven minutes. Um, there's a lot of really fascinating world cinema, uh, like Lucio Fulci and beyond, that uh, you should check out. So go to genregrinder.com for uh, all the great work that Gabe does. Thank you. I'm also on uh, Twitter at, at genregrinder. No, nah, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't go on Twitter. It's and- bad. Uh, at Gabe M as in Matthew Powers. So this is all. I don't but you don't want to follow me probably because it's mostly retweeting political stuff, and then just my reviews, which you can find on Genre Grinder anyway. So don't forget the most. The, don't forget the most uh, popular. Not the most popular, but the best social media hangout for for people like us. 
Facebook.com. No, 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 no. It begins with an L. Oh, yeah, yeah. I have lists on Letterboxd, too. I'm looking right now. I'm just Gabe Gabe Powers. I'm Patrick Rapole on Letterboxd, and I've reviewed every movie I've seen since 2013. I know, that's wild. I admire your stamina. I've been trying to do that since you're great writing. Yeah. And I'm uh, Jim can be found at directorsclubpodcast.com as well as Letterboxd, now playing Jim, Twitter, now playing Jim, and I'm also doing sporadic reviews at voicesvisions.net. So you can go there as well. And I'm really excited to, uh, you know, dial things down a little bit and uh, talk about a filmmaker who only has like four or five films <laughs> to her name. Um, Celine, oh my gosh, Celine Skiyama, I believe. And, uh, she's, she's most renowned for her incredible film from last year that some people, I guess, are considering still a 2020 release. Uh, of course it is. It came out in 2020. <laughs> but I, I saw it in 2019. <laughs> which I saw it in 2020 movie? in its, in its theatrical release. We're of course talking about Harley Quinn. Portrait oh. of a Lady on Fire. I thought we were talking. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've, I haven't seen that. <laughs> it's pretty great. It's on Hulu. It is on right? Hulu, and it's on my Hulu list. But I've been watching nothing but Fulci movies and found footage horror movies and Friday Thirteenth movies because you know October is just you have to be on every podcast ever. <laughs> exactly. There's too much going. on. It's going to be such October. a relief to just be able to watch whatever I want starting tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I pretty much have to wait till January or <laughs> February. Oh, speaking of Jim, cause... speaking of Jim, if I'm going to be talking to Patrick about uh, uh, shot on video horror, uh, you and I are going to talk about uh, body snatcher movies. Yes. Uh, do you want to do that? Maybe January or February. I'm open for. Yeah, 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 yeah. Either one should be okay. I'm okay. definitely less busy. Okay. So. Cool. Yeah, and then you know if it, it doesn't matter if the world is a worst a worse place uh, next year because you know it's already a terrible place. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's why Fulci just it just felt right. Yeah, exactly. To cover him right about now, and uh, well, we'll see, Patrick. Hopefully, you uh, come back for a anniversary special of some kind in January. But uh, you know, we'll we'll just play it by ear and see how it happens. Mm-hmm. Cool. All right. Thanks for thanks for being on here, guys. All right. Bye-bye. Later. I think that the Cider House rules. I think that the Cider House rules!